I went into the Kalahari Desert and lived with the San Bushmen, the oldest tribe on the planet, and I wanted to say that I hunted alongside them. 60 guys or so had walked past this one tree. I bumped the tree with my pack and a Malaysian mud hornet nest fell out of the tree and exploded on the back of my pack. I remember nothing but sheer pain and inside the bay was this Sherman tank. This tank is not just a Sherman. You guys have a very, very rare piece of it. We've declared war on work as a society, all of us. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up. That no people on earth are so fearless or daring or determined. The world is not driven by greed. It's driven by envy. This is about as macro environment as I've ever seen. Undercapitalized, the wrong people, bad market conditions. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Yeah, well, I mean, when I first started, I just had the, I just had this laptop and then like a blue Yeti mic. Um, but then, like I was telling you, the, the issues with the mic were super annoying. So we're recording now. So anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. <laughs> God help us. That right there should be the highlight introduction. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're here in Las Vegas. I'm with a buddy of mine. Good What's night. your name? My name is Scott Rickard. Where, where are you from? I am from Sydney, Australia. I couldn't tell by the accent in your voice where you're from. Yeah, I, I skipped the whole Crocodile Dundee bit. <laughs> um, so normally we talk to business managers or owners and stuff on the podcast, and you're kind of a, a manager of sorts, but you do something a little different. But before we get into all that, we're going to talk about just your life story and how you ended up where you are, because it's insane uh, what's our time limit <laughs> dude we could go for however long you're awake for yeah we've already drank quite a bit and we've yeah. already smoked some cigars ate a bunch of ribs we got full bellies well but we're to gonna push to through the, the life story is gonna be 10 hours move that down a little bit like, okay yeah yeah the life story is gonna be about 10 hours so do it <laughs> <laughs> all right in part 19 of this <laughs> <laughs> we're drinking uh Johnny Walker Double Black. This stuff's really good. Yeah. I have the blue label at home I got for a gift, but I think as far as uh, price point goes, I think this is a pretty good, because yeah. this wasn't too cheap, huh? The blue label's usually a gift. Yeah. You never buy it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm being conservative with how I drink that. Yeah. It is very good. But. Absolutely. All right. So back into it. Here we go. <laughs> Where are you from? Um, like, you know, you said Sydney, Australia, but you know, what, what the frick? Okay. Um, yeah, I was born in Sydney, um, 88. So that would make me 35 <laughs> this year or 16, however the way you look at it. Um, yeah. Um, great childhood, grew up in the nineties in Australia. So uh, my parents were great, um, good upbringing, learned all the traditional values, that type of thing. Um, your mom yeah. was like a tennis yeah coach um, or something. Yeah, my my mom's uh, up to the point where she got married and had kids. Her whole life was tennis, um, and she went onto the pro circuit. She was in Wimbledon, um, but that was at a time when Wimbledon was not uh, big money uh, 
it was still kind of a growing uh, competition. But yeah, she she kind of hit the top of uh, her level of um, her, her field in tennis. Um, and then she was also being international and uh, her dad died while she was on the Wimbledon circuit. So she had to come back to Australia to, you know, deal with that and be with her mom. So she kind of didn't keep pursuing the pro circuit. She went into uh, coaching instead um, and then came over to America actually in Texas at the John Newcomb Ranch. Oh, okay. And, and that's where they would coach upcoming uh, tennis professionals. Were you born yet? No. 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 And I, I never met uh, her dad. He died before I was uh, even okay. thought about. So, so um, let's see. 88 was when you were born. Mm. I was born four years later. Okay. You're just a hair older than me. A little bit. Was there any like major things that, that you remember from your childhood? Um, yeah, I mean, we'd have to get more specific. Um, uh, growing up at the time, you're a little kid, so you don't understand anything. Um, but as you get older and you go out into the world, you look back at your childhood, and then at that point you can judge it. And I would say growing up in Australia in the 90s was a great time. Pretty badass. Yeah. Yeah. Now Sydney's like it, I know Sydney of pictures, and it's kind of a city now. Was it always as developed um, as it is now? No. Uh, now it's uh, like footprint-wise, it's huge. It's um, rivals LA in oh, not, not population, but to get Land, from one house. side of the city to the other, it's oh wow, that's not quite a drive. Um, I grew up on the northern beaches of Sydney, so I'm 15 or 20 minutes from the beach. Um, a lot of the international world knows of Bondi. That's on the southern beaches. I'm from the northern beaches. So Manly area is what most travelers would know of. I'm 15 or 20 minutes from there. Um, but I'm up the hill a little bit. And where I grew up, um, you know, I'm a few blocks from National Park, bushland. So, And I'm assuming that's where you spent most of your time other than the beach. Um, I was a mixture. Uh, my family's a beach-going uh, family. Uh, my granddad was a legend in the surf club uh, community, Freshwater Beach. And uh, then my dad and his brother subsequently followed on uh, into that world. Uh, I, I grew up on the beach. I was a bodyboarder. I was surfing every weekend in summer. But um, my dad would also, you know, he has a career in the army as well, uh, army reserve, and he would also take to the bush. And I don't know why, I can't describe it, but I was drawn to the bush more than the ocean. Um, I can fish, I've been fishing, I surf, I've been surfing, but there's something about the bush that drew me in more, a lot more so than the ocean. Um, so uh, equal amounts of time in the bush. You know, I was fortunate to have a dad that took me hiking and taught me how to make a fire and, you know, that type of thing. So, yeah. yeah. I remember you showing me a video that you had made back before like making per, like personal movies and stuff was a big thing and mm. you did it off I think Windows Media Player. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? I think that I like remember. war movie thing that you oh, did. Oh yeah, the war movie. Yeah, yeah Death Triggers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you should post that. Like you should put that up on the YouTubes oh, and boy. Yeah, uh, that'd be a comedy, even though it's not supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was impressive, yeah. considering like what you were working with. 
Yeah, so I, I guess that leads to the next part of my life. So um, my, my dad did 20 years in the Army. Um, he finished up as an infantry warrant officer. And early on, like my earliest childhood memories are movies, um, which will play a bigger role later on, but my earliest childhood memories would be watching Kelly's Heroes and Sands of Iwo Jima with my dad and my granddad. Uh, I can't pinpoint when and where, but as far as my mind can go back, it was that. And um, again, I, I don't know why, but I was just drawn to the army. Uh, at that time in my childhood, that's all I wanted to do all through school. Um, it was the army. Um, so yeah, leading, I forgot the point of the story. Um, and we're going to have that a lot movies of movies and, and going in the army and you're, yeah. Um, so yeah, the army was a huge, huge part of my upbringing and who I am. <coughs> oh gosh. <laughs> Choking on a piece of ice. Taylor can't handle the double black. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, did, I mean, we, we can rush through your, like, upbringing and stuff, but, yeah. like, was there, other than the bush, like, were you, do you have, like, an equivalent to Cub Scouts or something, like yes. how we do here? Yes. Um, so, I can't remember when, and it's not really relevant, but uh, unlike America and Australia, you have what's called the Army Cadets. Um, I believe the equivalent here is the JROTC. Okay, yeah. Ca- kind of like where kids... Uh, wear the uniform, mm. they learn how to salute, they learn military, but they're not soldiers. Yeah, I think we have a bunch of different, because it depends on how old yeah. you are. Yeah. So like Cub Scouts, Eagle Scouts, that's like survival stuff. Mm-hmm. So we used um, to laugh. They have like little uni- uniforms. We used to laugh wear, at Scouts. Yeah we, yeah, we would do cool shit and they would do what they do. So Then there is military schools where like people ship their yeah. shitty kids off to military school. <laughs> No, uh, it, I wasn't in a military school. I was in Army Cadets. And timeline, it's the same thing as the Army Reserve. It's like one night a week, like a parade. Um, and you would do uh, one weekend every two or three months. And then you do one week a year, like the annual. And it's for a soldier and an adult, it's kind of laughable. But as a kid, um, it's the closest you're going to get to the military. And when you're a kid... You take it very seriously, and each army cadet unit is run differently. Uh, but I was very, very fortunate at that time in that place where I was to have some very important uh, mentors in my life that taught me a lot about leadership, uh, teaching people, taking responsibility, and and there were army cadet unit army cadet units that kind of lacked in that area. But I was very lucky to have that, and those. Believe it or not, um, some of those skills I learned as a kid, uh, the Army didn't even teach me. Mm-hmm. And those skills have translated to almost every aspect of everything I've done now. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, it was a double-edged sword uh, because it became a borderline obsession to where I would go to school and didn't care about school. It was just the Army. Um, double-edged sword uh, negatively... I was close-minded to basically anything else. Um, I was just not interested. Uh, didn't care about my grades. Didn't do very well in school. There were some areas I did okay in. Um, but my at that time, my goal was to be the best in the Army cadets. And yeah. I was pretty good. And then what age did you start that? 
Was that a like um, middle school or was that like really young? No, uh, I was in year nine, so I would have been. That's like high school, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess freshman, I think, is what it would equate to. Thirteen, here. fourteen, 15. yeah, yeah. It's like freshman, in and high then school. and then you do all that until you're in eighteen. Okay, so I yeah did that till I was eighteen. Uh, I had a similar thing once I got into high school because like I wanted to be a marine my whole life, um, like obsessed with it, but despite people pushing me toward like going to college and becoming an officer and stuff like that. And mm. like my senior year of high school, I made the choice that I'm going to enlist. Yeah. I had like a, a number to go to the Naval Academy and like all this stuff. Mm. And I was just like, Nope, I'm going to enlist. That was me. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> no, there's, uh, and yeah, getting into more of the army culture. Um, it, it's something people don't understand. I say army, I mean military. Uh, there's a value in being the fighting man. Uh, and even, a, you know, I was infantry. Uh, even the platoon commander, who is the lowest level of officer, uh, he's only starting out. Even at that level, uh, he's not in the rear, he's in the fight, but he's at the rear of the firefight. Uh, he wasn't the guy uh, up front. And um, I, I don't know how to put my finger on it, if it's the warrior mindset or I don't know what it is, but um, I didn't want to be an officer. I, I wanted no part of it. I wanted to be uh, on the ground at yeah. the front. So. Did, I mean, we'll always talk about here, like where were you when 9-11 happened? But in Australia, was there a similar feeling when that happened there? Uh, I was in year seven. Um, I remember it clearly. Um, the first thing would be timeline, uh, like, date time difference. Uh, I woke up in the morning and it was already old news. Mm. And this was kind of back uh, nine MS, uh, MSN type days okay. on the yeah, internet. Yeah. And my mom, I woke up and uh, I walked into the computer room before I had breakfast and mom was checking her emails and her homepage had footage of the plane hitting the tower. I thought it was a movie trailer. <laughs> I was like, this is some new movie coming out. Oh shit. Uh, and, and, um, I don't think mum had caught on to it either. And it wasn't until I went to school that kind of word got around and we were so far away from mm -hmm. all of that. Um, I don't remember exactly. Um, Hold on a sec. Yeah, whenever I saw it, it was, uh, we had just seen it after the, the first plane hit. Mm. So I was just like, oh, that's crazy. A plane hit the building. Yeah. And then I remember sitting there eating like oatmeal or something because mm. it was morning time for us. Yeah. And I saw the second one hit, and I'm just like, "What the heck?" But I was in fourth grade. Yeah, so. I was. I was. I would have been 13. You wouldn't have been mm -hmm. 10. Yeah. 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 So, uh, but again, I already knew I wanted to be in the army. 9/11 uh, didn't swing that one way or another. Yeah. Here in the United States, there was like this general feeling that everybody had that we're gonna go to war. Yeah. Even though nobody knew any of the details of why or where they came from or what happened, everybody was like, someone attacked us. See, we were already engulfed in conflict. Uh, we had East Timor in 99. And uh, in 99, from the period of 99 to maybe, mm, I would say, 03, that was heavy shit. Was uh, that Africa? What was that? East Timor is an island right above uh, New Guinea, which is right above Australia. Okay. Well, kind of... Not exactly above New Guinea, but in that region, Indonesia type uh, Pacific Islands. 
And uh, it wasn't an all-out war, so to speak. It was a, a, a civil unrest, uh, but it was nasty. Mm-hmm. And Australia in that region was the superpower. And we had troops in East Timor for 20 years. Oh, shoot. And that before 9-11, that was all over the news. Uh, we were already kind of hip deep in a conflict uh, and it kind of petered out, uh, but then it flared up again in 06. Um, so uh, our military being deployed was already a, a thing. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah, And that's all like jungle warfare. Yeah, it was predominantly, it was called a peacekeeping operation, but early on there were heads getting cut off and, and oh, riots and firefights and kind of like uh, skirmish type operations. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a counterinsurgency. Uh, I did not deploy to East Timor. My brother did, but um, yeah, we already knew we were already in a deployment before nine eleven. Yeah, um, I mean, in the United States, we kind of pride ourselves in like our military power and mm-hmm. all this stuff. But like Australia, you guys seem like kind of chill. Like you don't. We we think of like armies and stuff we don't think of australians being like this crazy and fighting all the time right you guys have a long history of fighting Mm -hmm. all over the place we do um i i guess the the bottom line is population we just don't have the amount of people that are in the united states Mm -hmm. or the uk or whatever um but uh prior to world war ii uh being part of the commonwealth every major commitment the british had we were there we had some form of contingent there um and then kind of once world war ii hit we we didn't part ways from the british but we became closer to america um and since then we've been involved in every we've had a detachment of some form in some numbers uh alongside america ever since so after high school once you graduate you join the military uh no um I again, all I wanted to do was the military, but my I'm not going to say my parents were against it, uh, but they pushed to kind of try something else, see where you're at, see how you feel type of deal. So, uh, my first year out of high school, I was working for my dad as a tire fitter, uh, he owned a successful tire and mechanical business with his brother. Um, so I did that. Um, I did some bar work for a catering company. I just did a bunch of stuff, messed around, uh, joined the Army Reserve, um, joined the same unit my dad served in. Um, and that was kind of cool, like, you know, serving at the same place your dad did. Um, you know, and when I showed up as a recruit, they already knew my name because uh, he retired in 91 and I showed up in 06. There were still people from when he was in that knew the Rickard name. Wow. And they already knew who I was and his name was up on the board in the mess hall, that type of thing. Uh, but I'd only done, I did our recruit training, which is boot camp, uh, if you will. And I already knew, like, I'm wasting time doing this reserve stuff. It's time to yeah. transfer. So I did. And that was, I mean, war is still hot and heavy in the Middle East. During that all uh, that time, right? At that time, Australia had four deployments. Yeah. We had the uh, East Timor, as I just mentioned. We also had the Solomon Islands, which was another uh, serious peacekeeping operation. We had Iraq and we had Afghanistan. Uh, 
pre-second uh, invasion. So we had troops there in 01. Yeah, it's pretty wild because yeah. I never heard of any of that. Yeah. The only yeah. Solomon Islands I've ever heard of is all Guadalcanal no, and Marines uh, yeah, and stuff we, in World War II. Uh, the shit hit the fan there again. Uh, again, I didn't deploy there. I don't know the status, but troops from my reserve unit when I was a recruit deployed to the Solomons. Mm. And, uh, you know, you kind of pay it off as like, oh, it's not combat, but then they come back and, um, you know, some of the stories they have like, a, you know, just touching on it briefly, uh, riot Right mm -hmm. level training. Uh, some parts of me would rather be in a all out firefight combat than a riot. Uh, yeah, you're in you're in a firefight. Um, you have the ability to destroy the enemy, um, bring fire to bear on the enemy. In a riot, it doesn't work that way. Um, you ha yes, you have the ability to neutralize the enemy, but to a point, you got to stand there and just uh, let the enemy. Oh, they're not even the enemy. They're right, you know. Yeah, and just and ask any cop. You've got a shield. The riots and a, here, what they feel about. Yeah, you've yeah. got a shield and a baton, and there's guys with guns throwing molotovs at you. You sure? Uh, all of that was going down in the Solomons. Yeah, I've talked to some people that were in uh, Haiti after the what was I think it was the earthquake or something like that. Yeah, I think it was an earthquake. Yeah, and you know it's just chaos. Yep. You know, and uh, yeah, I did. I remember doing some very serious high level riot training and at the time I was like I'd I think I would rather be in a firefight. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I would yeah. The the one thing that you the one thing that you want to have in a volatile situation is control of the situation. Mm -hmm. In a like full blown combat situation like you're saying, you have the ability to destroy the enemy. That guy's shooting at me. Yeah, I can take them out. Yep. But yeah, when you have a, you know, bad actors within a crowd of people that are just, you know, yeah, you know, that's you yep. can't just <laughs> yeah. you can't just throw a Molotov back at them. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, how long were you in the the army active duty? Uh, five years. Yeah, five years. Is that a normal? Ours is. I think the baseline is like four years. Yeah, for we us. do. We would do four. Okay. Regular army or regular military, and then um, you could. There's no sign on again or reenlistment. You mm -hmm. just put in your discharge, or you don't. You just stay in. What was the worst experience you had training in Australia? Because everything in that country wants to kill you. Oh, bugs wise. Everything. Oh. Everything wants to kill you. Uh, that's that's a tourist gimmick. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it is not. You've told me stories. It is not all a right, tourist gimmick. All right. Um, well, my, my worst experience in the military in that sense was in Malaysia. Um, but within Australia, um, I went to the Jungle Warfare Center, which is in a place called Tully. And uh, there's a plant in Tully called Gimpy Weed. Uh, and gimpy weed is not very well known, even in Australia, because it only takes up, I don't know, I'm not good with numbers. You look it up on Wikipedia, it takes up 0.001% of Australian landmass. But the highest concentration of gimpy weed happens to be the same place the Australian <laughs> Army made their jungle warfare center. And um, gimpy weed looks like every other tree in the jungle. It's green, it's a leaf. 
Um, there's like five other plants that look exactly the same as it. <laughs> and um, uh, gimpy weed, it, it's a, it's a, it's. I guess you could call it like a frond type plant. Um, the leaf grows in the heart shape, about the size of a soccer ball, and it grows about head height. Uh, but on the surface of the leaf are these uh, hair follicles, which are hollow, and inside those hair follicles are neurotoxin, the same toxin that is found in snake venom. Uh, and but it, the venom, when the hair follicles brush against your skin, it go, it only goes into the epidermis of the skin. It doesn't go into the bloodstream. So you have neurotoxin in your body, but it's not being absorbed into the bloodstream. Uh, uh, we're told all this after the fact, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, you'd have a wall yeah. rife with it. We're going to train where? Nope, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, guys would would get warned about this gimpy weed. It, gimpy is an Aboriginal word. Gimpy, gimpy. I don't ask me what it means. Um, and you'd hear stories of guys going through Tully and getting stung by gimpy weed. And it sounded horrifying, but, you know, you're a grunt. You, uh, we don't have a ranger school. We don't have a tab, none of that. Uh, our closest version of ranger school for the infantry pre sort of going to special forces or anything would be going through Jungle Warfare Center. And at the end of it, you don't get a badge or a tab or a certificate. You have the right to say... You survive Jungle Warfare Center. Well, the rite of passage going through Jungle Warfare Center, one of those is getting stung by gimpy weed. <laughs> and guys would get gimpy weed in the arm and you'd be on a patrol, full tack, total silence, and you just hear a grown male screaming. <laughs> like you would think that he lost an arm or he's got a sucking chest wound and someone's calling for the medic. Like it's, it's terrifying. Uh, but he just got gimpy weed on the arm. Uh, so knowing all of that, uh, I went through Tully. Uh, don't ask me how far into the course it was. I can't remember, but we got into a, an exercise uh, firefight uh, and I took a bound. The dude in front of me trod on a gimpy weed stem and when he trod off the stem, the plant sprung into my face. <laughs> I had gimpy weed in the face, in the nose and in the eyes um, and I should lead with the reason that the army brought that land is because farmers refused to farm on it. Because when they did, when their livestock was stung by gimpy weed, horses or cattle would either drown themselves or jump off a cliff. <laughs> like animals commit suicide <laughs> when they get stung by this plant. Um, I got it in the face, in the eyes, and uh, th there's nothing they can do for it. I guess it's just a testament to how tough you are. Uh, Sure. <laughs> Unless you've had like full facial reconstructive surgery because you scratched your whole face off trying oh, to get it off. The, the guy, the medic was like, there's nothing we can do. Uh, they, they get uh, athletic, uh, what's the, the tape? Like, like duct tape or something? Yeah, but the, the, the medical one that athletes mm -hmm. wear, they yeah. would get that tape and they'd put it on your face and they'd rip it off in an attempt to try to grab some of those hair follicles and pull them out of your skin. But th at that point, the neurotoxin is already into the into oh the gosh. surface of the skin, and it's it's very painful. Uh, extreme pain, nine, eight, nine out of ten pain for for three, four, five hours maybe. Um, but the killer part of gimpy weed is those hair follicles 
remain in the surface of the skin for, in some cases, years after the fact. And I'd heard of instructors from Tully that had these uh, gimpy weed uh, hair follicles in their skin uh, 18 months, two years after. And because they're hollow, uh, when, when a cold breeze would go over the skin, it'd go through those hollow, hollow fibers into the skin and irritate the skin. Like, and you get like a hives type. Yeah. Uh, I had it in my nose. And for, for me, it was probably a year later. Oh my um, gosh. I, I was wanting to tear my nose off my face. <laughs> oh my gosh. But it wasn't pain. It was just like a really, really, really irritating. Uh, but uh, those that are interested in gimpy weed, you can YouTube <laughs> it. And there's a, uh, I can't remember the name of him, a British guy does a documentary and he, he stings him. Uh, it might have been Ray Mears. Oh, okay. Maybe uh, it could be another guy, uh, but he stings himself with gimpy weed on the finger and he throws up and screams. Oh and, my gosh. So, Yeah, what a wimp. He should have <laughs> took it to the face. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that wasn't the first no. jungle experience. Tell me about no. the uh, the flying creatures. Uh, uh, all right. Um, so the most painful thing I've ever experienced was in the Southern Highlands of Malaysia. Well, I should say Southern Lowlands of uh, the Malaysian jungle. Uh, and when you go to war, they say it's better to get killed in the first day than go through the whole of war and deal with all that and then get killed. Well, uh, the human body in the jungle can only really last four or five days uh, until your equipment starts rotting, your weapon starts to, you know, doesn't matter how much oil you put on it, it starts to deteriorate. Um, I remember the seams of my boots and my equipment just busting because they're rotten. Um, we would only do four or five days at a time in the jungle. Now, guys in World War II would do who knows how long. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, my hat goes off to those guys. But, you know, in training... Uh, you get a little taste of it in that right. Pacific Right, well, you show. could only do four or five days before you had to go back to kind of the rear area and shower and, and deal with all your rashes and, and skin infections and clean yeah. your equipment, so on and so forth. Uh, fortunately, this happened to me uh, 20 minutes off the truck. <laughs> I didn't have to... Five days in the jungle is like nine months in the bush anywhere mm -hmm. else. Uh, it's, it's, it's a thing. Um, so we got off the truck and um, uh, Malaysia has this fascinating insect called uh, the Malaysian mud hornet. It's the size of a small bird and the stinger on their tail is, is like a picture frame hanging nail. Um, uh, and, and unlike bees and wasps, again, I learned all this after the fact, unlike bees and wasps, <laughs> and we're supposed to be talking about business, but this is entertaining, right? It shapes who you are and your success yeah, in your exactly. business. Yeah, exactly. That's what we're getting at. Yeah. I'm not making any money, but I'm going to keep going. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Um, so unlike bees and wasps, it's, it's just a sting. Unless you're allergic, uh, it's just going to hurt. That's it. Uh, the hornet has venom, like a snake or a spider. Well, 20 minutes off the truck, we were in company single file and infantry companies, about 90 guys. Um, and I was somewhere towards the last third of guys. So... I would say 60 people walked past this tree and then one guy uh, decided, well, every, every good infantryman, every, every five or 10 paces, 
Uh, again, for those that don't know, you're, it's total silence. There's no talking. Is this a day or night? It's in the day. Okay. You can't move in the jungle at night. Yeah. You can't see your face in front of your hand and there's no white light and night vision doesn't work in the jungle without IR. So it's in the day. Um, every 10 or 15 paces, you turn around and you check the guy behind you because if a field signal is getting passed up from the rear, you have to see it. Uh, so 60 guys or so had walked past this one tree and uh, this one tree was the one tree that I turned around at and bumped the tree with my pack and a Malaysian mud hornet nest fell out of the tree and exploded on the back of my pack. And uh, at the time, uh, I remember nothing but sheer pain Um it felt like someone was shooting a paintball gun like point blank into my face and my head. You and your, your face and... Mm. And, and we don't wear helmets and body armor in the jungle. It's too hot. Your so face I, just attracts all of the worst <laughs> things ever. Yeah. Um, um, and I, I, at the time, I don't remember what was going on, but I remember someone behind me screaming, like, get out of there. Uh, and when you're in the military, your weapon is your life. You hold on to it, you take care of it, you respect it. I remember throwing my machine gun. <laughs> uh, someone's like, get out of there, get out of there. And I thought I interrupted some kind of spider's nest and they were all over me. I couldn't see anything. I, oh had I already had blood all in my eyes. Um, and the dude was just screaming, get out of there. So I remember throwing the gun and just running. I dropped... My pack had these quick release straps. I dropped the pack and just ran. Uh, and the platoon sergeant caught me and um, he sat me down. And because I went into a quick sprint, uh, I'm not allergic to hornets or bees, thank God. Um, he thought I was because I'd just done a quick sprint, rapid breathing, all that. I was coughing a little bit. He thought I was going into anaphylactic shock. So he cut up his camelback tube and he was getting ready to feed it down my throat to stop my airways closing up. And I remember kind of fighting with him, like, I'm good, I'm good. Uh, and then someone had been like, you've just been stung by those, those hornet things, um, which we didn't know anything about. Um, they, they don't really brief you on any of that. Um, and I went, uh, I went into shock uh, and, and again, this was all explained to me after the fact. I went into shock then and there, but it wasn't anaphylactic shock because I was breathing. Yeah, It was, I'm assuming, just shock from the pain. Well, yeah, this, again, this was all explained to me after the fact. Um, so the way that pain works is uh, the pain center in your body uh, activates the nerve cells to, to tell the body, hey, this hurts, stop doing it. Uh, well, that takes energy. Um, your body will only produce so much energy to make that pain signal until the body decides, I'm putting too much energy into this. I can't sustain this. I'm going to put myself into shock as a defense mechanism. That's what happened. Uh, but apparently for that to happen, the pain level has to be <laughs> near like the top. Like almost like you're about to die. I would guess. Yeah. <laughs> so that happened, um, and then I remember, I don't know how long after it was, I woke up out on the road where we had got off the trucks to uh, the combat medic. 
uh, and he was telling me I can't give you morphine because it will mask any symptoms of an allergic reaction. We have to wait half an hour. I remember grabbing hold of him and just screaming at him. <laughs> Um, so I had to deal with this 10 out of 10 pain. Uh, I had holes in my face, in my ears, blood everywhere um, because these little shits will curl their tail and just keep going in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. Um, um, so I was out on the road screaming at the medic because he wouldn't give me morphine, uh, passed out again, woke up in the ambulance on the way to emergency, which was in... Uh, a hospital in, in uh, Johor Bahru, which is a big town in the south of Malaysia. Um, got put into emergency, got kidney steroids, antivenine, and I remember they told me I had the maximum dose of morphine before the heart would stop. Uh, I think it was it was a dose every 15 minutes and uh, after about an hour they were asking me how I feel. Do I still feel pain? And I was like, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Talking out of the 15 uh, holes in your head. <laughs> yeah, I kind of feel relaxed, but I feel this really, really, really hurts, but I feel kind of sleepy. Um, and they were like, well, we can't give you any more. So suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> yeah. Um, and again, the medics, had never seen anything like the medics have seen one or two bug bites. Yeah. Not the level that I'd had. Well, uh, the hospital had to call down some kind of bites and sting specialist from Kuala Lumpur. Um, and he examined me. Uh, I was asleep, passed out. Uh, I had 38 stings to the face and head Gosh. from the Malaysian mud hornet. And, uh, but. Uh, you know, with everything all said and done, I was out of the hospital in three or four days and back in the jungle. Training. Yeah. Yeah. L looking, <laughs> like, looking at every single tree <laughs> that I walked past. It's so. amazing to me that you still like being outdoors. Yeah. 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 You're a psychopath. Yeah. How long after all of this did you end up getting out of the military? Um, that was... 2011, I think I, I got out of the regular army in 2012 and then I did another year in the, I uh, did 18 months or so in the reserves again. Mm -hmm. uh, and then life just kind of went on and I just got out. Yeah. What uh, What's next for you after that? Um, I, got out the, I got out of the military and I, I was just kind of lost uh, because the military was my belief system. That mm -hmm. was my whole reason for existing and it just didn't really work out. Um, and the military is a weird environment. Um, and I would never talk bad on the military to anyone who hasn't been, but veterans know what I'm talking about. When I would say some people just have their whole entire career laid out for them. I don't know if it's the way the stars are lined up or what, but some people don't have to lift a finger and they get all the deployments, they get all the courses. They're a shit soldier, but it just works out. Then there's other guys who uh, every last, they give everything. And I don't know what it is, but they're just, they're always in the wrong place at the wrong time. They miss the deployments, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, it got to a point where I was like, I can be one of these crusty old warrant officers at 48 years old too old to get out and do anything else or I can 
take control of this now and figure it out. Um, and when someone whose whole entire belief system was the military collapses, you've, you're in a bad way. Uh, I didn't join the military for an escape or because I played computer games or I liked a war movie and saw a recruiting ad. I joined the military because that's all I wanted to do and that didn't work out. So, well, yeah, when I got out of the military, I was pretty mentally, I was pretty in a pretty bad way. Um, but I got out and I was kind of looking for the next thing that would be the same as the military uh, I did the whole uh, apply to join the police force, um, you know, long sub story, blah, blah, blah. Did a few odds and ends jobs out of the military. Um, but uh, that uh, thirst for being a soldier took me to anti-poaching in Africa. So I did two anti-poaching deployments in Southern Africa, which transitioned into uh, game park maintenance management type. I got a little bit of time there. Um, and then I, I loved uh, survival uh, in the military and out of the military and um, did some training in the military with that. But that led me to a place of um, you know, everyone knows survival is Bear grills, starting a fire with a battery, you know, get to safety, that type of thing. That is reactive survival. Um, I wanted to do more and that led me to, um, you know, I was like, what if you don't have a battery? What if you don't have a ferrocerium rod? What if you don't have uh, water, for purica water for purification tablets? What if none of that's available? What then? Well, the one place you can always turn to is the native tribes of the area you're in. Uh, so I began to study native tribes as an objective view of how did they do it. Uh, but that led me down a path of a whole new world of spirituality and native tribes aren't surviving. They're actually living and their spirituality and uh, mindset towards living among the land. So when I was in Africa, I visited probably... 20 different tribes, I uh, lived with some of them. Uh, I went into the Kalahari Desert in Namibia and lived with the Sand Bushmen. Uh, the Sand Bushmen are the oldest tribe on the planet and I wanted to say that I hunted alongside them. And whilst that's an incredible achievement now, at that time, I was still chasing that military tick-in-the-box qualification sort of mindset. Yeah, because the anti-poaching there wasn't with guns, right? It was some other um, thing. Yeah, so I went over there trying to be a soldier and uh, I had a really cool guy. Uh, my first anti-poaching attempt was a complete scam. It was a corrupt white farmer that um, he advertises an anti-poaching uh, role um, and it was in Zulu, which is it's not a big five game area. There's no elephants and lions. It's um, just a lot of antelope, giraffe, ostrich. And um, he brought us in uh, because he owned a hunting farm and he would charge tourists however much money to hunt one of his kudu or his um, springbok. Uh, but the neighboring Zulu tribes would also hunt that food 
Uh, but they would hunt for food, whereas his tourists would hunt for a trophy. Mm. Um, he was getting pissed off because the Zulus were coming onto his property, which is rightfully their property, uh, and hunting antelope for food because that's their lifestyle. That's how they've lived for thousands of years. Uh, but he brought us in as an attempt to conduct anti-poaching against the Zulu tribes. And we went there a couple of days till we realized, like, we're helping the bad guy. Yeah. You know, some people might have been okay with that. And yes, it was his livelihood. He relied on tourists coming in and paying, paying money to hunt uh, an antelope. And if that antelope was lost to feed someone instead of someone's hunting trophy, uh, he had an issue with that. Um, but we, we pulled the pin, we got out of there. Um, and then we did some other stuff in South Africa and then found another reserve on the Kruger National Park where they actually did anti-poaching and game management and took uh, wildlife preservation seriously. Um, and we kind of jumped in with that lot and that's where we kind of did the real thing. Yeah. We dealt with um, the poaching of black rhino, elephant, um, we would do um, anti-snare sweeps. Um, we would identify entry and exit points into the park, that type of thing. But I went in with the mindset of a soldier, you know, um, let's find these guys. Let's shoot them. Let's string them up. Yeah, let's just catch them. <laughs> let's find out where they, let's stop the problem before they're even in. Let's, you know, all those military things you do to, to hunt the enemy. Yeah. But the game warden, who himself was a very experienced South African special forces guy, he kind of set me straight. He said, we get a lot of you soldier types in here. Nothing wrong with that. You want to do that, but that's not how anti-poaching works. And he kind of set me straight on the reality of anti-poaching. Uh, so I took that on board. I did that. Um, but to do anti-poaching as a foreigner, you can't just go into... South Africa, Mozambique, Tanzania and just start killing the locals because they're hunting. They don't just give you a rifle and you go kill yeah. the locals. doesn't work that way. Um, so the armed, the armed response unit are uh, African locals and we were more of a, they were kind of like a QRF, quick response force. We would go out, we would do listening posts, observation posts. We were kind of like a deterrent and reconnaissance, and then when we actually bumped the enemy, or I shouldn't say enemy, the, the poachers, <laughs> uh, we would call in the QRF. Yeah. That. So like, yeah, you're the deterrent, but then the QRF is the dudes if it's like you're running into yeah. uh, we seriously got, we armed. Got, we got shot at like a, yeah. a few times. Um, one time the shit really hit the fan. Um, and you're supposed to keep eyes on them, but you're not armed. Right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I got my fix, kind of. Yeah. Um, okay, I've been shot at. This yeah. isn't fun. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's fun. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it was just, I was like, we're not... We're you not, can't do anything yeah, about it. Yeah. It's another situation. It's like, like that whole out of your control thing. Yeah. yeah. My hands are tied. Um, so, but a big part of anti-poaching is what a lot of people don't understand is... Um, more lions, more cats are killed because they dig through the fence of the park and get hit by a train or a car than any amount of poachers. 
in South Africa. Mm. The situation is different in neighboring countries like Mozambique or Tanzania, but in South Africa, that's the deal. So a big part of that of anti-poaching, which a lot of people refuse to accept, is not going and killing poachers. It's mending fences, uh, patrolling the surrounding areas. Um, you know, if you find somewhere a big cat has got out, you have to mend the fence. Yeah. Um, so you're more like a just a park ranger. Like here in the um, U.S. is kind of basically the same, similar thing. Uh, I, yeah, I guess you could say that. It's all voluntary. Yeah. In that sense. Um, but you, you're not a park ranger in the sense that if you bump into these guys, they're going to shoot at you. Right. They're either going to drop... If they're, 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 and then the poachers themselves change. Um, so another problem with poaching is you've got the end user, which is usually China, uh, but there are some exceptions who want the end product from the ivory or, or the pawn or whatever, aphrodisiac, whatever. Um, they'll have dealers in the country and those dealers will hire professionals uh, but the guy who's on the ground shooting the rhino and cutting off the horn, he doesn't make much money. Uh, you know, I, I can't quite off the top of my head now. This was a while ago. He doesn't make millions. He doesn't break out of poverty. He just, he makes enough to get by. But the problem is uh, just the locals who are just tribes or people or farmers see this as a way they think they're going to get that one rhino horn and then they're going to make millions mm. and live in the US or whatever. Yeah. So those guys who are locals, uh, like the professionals are not locals. They are they come in from somewhere else, uh, but the locals don't know that. So they'll pick up a gun or they'll make a gun. We found some crazy like homemade rifles, <laughs> like a piece of fence tube with a three or eight round and a nail and a spring. Like it was Crazy. That's impressive. Yeah. Um, so we'd find these locals, and these are the guys you don't want to kill. Uh, even though they're poaching, even though they might be shooting at you, if you kill one of the locals and the whole entire neighboring town of the park is drawn against you, your whole entire anti-poaching initiative is lost. So it becomes a whole entire like hearts and minds operation. But the sad part is the locals think that if they go in and poach a rhino or an elephant, they're going to make it big and break out of poverty. So you see a yeah. lot of that. Uh, we only saw professionals once or twice. Um, they had got a pregnant black rhino, killed it, chopped off the horn, and when we got up onto the, the kill site, only a short time after, the baby was just dead. It was oh, still man. warm. Yeah. So it's different in that sense to a park ranger in the US. Right, yeah, yeah. And at that point, you're like, well, fuck. It sounds like it's ran a lot like how like cartels do with drugs because a lot of times they go into these poor communities and they get the poor farmers, the one making, or they're, they're growing the cocoa plants and stuff. Mm. And they're yeah. doing all of the little process and stuff to make the cocaine or whatever. Yeah. But it's not them that's making all the money. Yeah. But their entire economy ends up being around that one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that happens. Um, but yeah, uh, I did that and just realized it wasn't a career move. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I wasn't going to settle down in yeah. national park and, you know, so I, I transitioned into game management for a little bit. Um, still in Africa. Yeah. Same park. Yeah. I just started hanging out with the, 
game maintenance guy. And instead of chasing poachers, we were doing things like mending fences, fixing vehicles. Um, a big part of game management is you have to track what the animals are eating. So every day you're driving to watering holes and you're counting game. So if you look at a pie graph and you want to track what the lions are eating, every year it changes. And you look at pie graphs over a 10-year period, uh, one year a uh, warthog might be 20% of the lion's diet. Um, two or three years will go by and the warthog will go from being 20% to 1%. And then the baboon comes in and becomes 15%. So the pie graph keeps changing based on uh, what food is actually out there and you have to catalog that. Hmm. Um, so that was that was game management. Um, yeah, so I did that. Um, at what point did you decide that Africa was done? Next chapter of your life? Uh, when I ran out of money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, Africa was. Uh, I had a return ticket. It was um, several months, but there was a return ticket. I had a list of things I wanted to do. Get it out of my system. Get it done. Um, and did it, came back, um, and then came back to Australia, and I was like, well, what now? Uh, again, did more of those just maintenance man jobs. Yeah. Um, and this is a part of my life where I learned that. Well, I think the maintenance man jobs is a pretty good portion of what led you into what you're doing yes. these days. So um, everyone has a key list of ingredients that they must have to make them happy. Uh, most people don't even know this. Uh, most people know this, but they don't know what those ingredients are and they'll spend a lifetime trying to find it. Um, it was at that point I learned this and I was like, I must find the ingredients that make me happy. And the maintenance man jobs, you know, I worked uh, maintenance in a, uh, you know, I should point out that somewhere in all of that, I lived and worked on a tropical island resort in the Whitsundays um, as a maintenance man. I was a maintenance guy in a game club. Uh, and I learned that for me to be happy in the, in the career aspect of things, I have to be using my brain. I have to be using my hands. I have to be doing something different every single day. I have to be solving problems. The moment it becomes repetitive, uh, monotonous, I'm not learning. That's where those ingredients for happiness kind of disappear. Uh, and anyone that's listening to this who struggles with that, I would say a maintenance man is a good start point because you're not an electrician, you're not a plumber, you're not a carpenter, you're all of that uh, on a basic level. And every single day you're fixing something different. In the process of doing that, you're learning something about yourself. Yeah. And, and a maintenance man no, needs no qualifications. Um, you know, it's not, a, it's not a romantic job, but in, when I was on the island, uh, in one day, I went from uh, checking the levels in the pool to fixing an oven in the kitchen to doing a sink in a bedroom to landscaping to running an excavator, digging landscaping on the island to going back into a room and doing drywall to going into a restaurant and fixing an oven. Like it just, it was crate sewerage, electricity, carpentry, all of it. 
Um, and the reason companies use a maintenance man is the maintenance man is the cheapest option before you have to employ the expert. And in my mindset was, uh, I need to do this job and get this job done before they call the electrician or the carpenter. And there's a saying that I also learn and appreciate that the more educated in one particular area you become, the less you learn. So an electrician becomes very talented in his field, but the more he dives into that field, the less he's open to learning about the chlorine levels in a pool or uh, how carpenters do like a roof join. Uh, but as a maintenance man, you, you've got to know all of that. And I didn't want to hand off a job to someone else. I wanted to say that I, it stopped with me, I fixed it. So the maintenance man role, uh, whilst it's not romantic, it was one of those key ingredients of this is what I need to be happy. This is the bottom line of what I need to be happy. Yeah. And that uh, it self-taught me skills that I now use to do what I do. Yeah, well, I mean, you're, if you can be happy doing what most people would not be willing to do, I mean, let's be honest, nobody wants to mess with sewage. Nobody wants well, I can, to. I can name a few guys that are proud yeah. sewage rats. <laughs> but, yeah. Absolutely. But I mean, like, if you're happy doing those things, not saying you got to do it forever, but if you can find happiness doing what I, most people I, I, want. I will work in a sewer bef- and covered in shit head to toe before I am a cashier in Walmart. Yeah. No disrespect to those people. They do something that I couldn't do. It's monotonous. Yeah. Just and I don't know how or, yeah. or, or any form of paperwork at a desk. I will be covered head to toe in sewage before I do that. Yeah. But again, everyone is different. Everyone has a different set of ingredients. Uh, if you get to the end of the road and you never even knew uh, what those ingredients were, then I feel sorry for you. Sure. Because you never reached your full potential. Let's take a break. Okay. All right. So how did you end up in Vegas? Um. Yeah, so after that trip back from Africa and all of that, uh, again, I was lost. What do I do? I need to do something that's meaningful to me. Uh, I had the opportunity to live and work in the U.S. And, um, you know, I was hesitant. But some very close friends of mine and good mentors said to me, you have an opportunity that most Australians will never have, ever. Uh, because the US and Australia, whilst we have a good relationship, for an Australian to come and work in the US and live here, it's actually very difficult. But I had that opportunity, so I took it. Um, you know, with the mindset I can always go back if it doesn't work out. So I came over here, I started out in Portland, Oregon. Uh, <clears throat> Kind of gravitated to what I knew, which was the maintenance man. So I was a maintenance man in the Sheridan Hotel on the in the airport at uh, Portland, Oregon, and I was only here eight months, and I already felt that uh, uh, that burning need of uh, you're now in the land of opportunity. All the big stuff happens here. Why are you doing something that you could be doing back in Australia? So uh, at that point, I decided to take matters into my own hands and 
I, I looked at joining the military here. I went through MEPS. Um, I knew that the Air Force had the SEER instructor role. I was very drawn to that. Uh, and I tried what, to... SEER is the survive... Uh, survival evasion, evade. resistance, escape. Yeah, that's right. Um, and unlike Australia, uh, in the US, that is an actual MOS. Mm. Um, uh, the famous Garantham YouTube guy, he was a SEER instructor. Um, and I was like, wow, that's, I definitely want, I don't want to go down the whole infantry path again. Uh, that's, I want to do that. So I showed up to the Air Force recruiting office and with my dry, abrasive, ridiculous sense of humor, the Air Force recruiter's like, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to guard aliens at Area 51. <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me like I was a fucking idiot and uh, I kind of lost his respect like immediately. Uh, and he's like, hey, you can't do that. And I'm like, well, someone does it. <laughs> so how do I do it? <laughs> he's like, we're going to go next door and see the army. Uh, but I was like, no, I'm serious. Like, well, what about Sierra Instructor? And they were excited. And the shit part about all of this is I'm former Australian military. Uh, even at the recruiters level, they were all about it. They were like, oh, you're former Military, they'll love you. You'll eat it up. You'll do well. You could do any job you want, blah, blah, blah. They were ready to sign me on. And he's like, I just have to clear up a technicality. Let me call uh, headquarters. Uh, he called his CO at uh, some higher level of Air Force. And they were like, you can't join the Air Force, period. I'm like, why? I'm, I'm a lawful permanent resident. And they're like, no, it's not that. We have lawful permanent residents join all the time. Like, so what is it? And they were like, you are a former military from another country. You are an intelligence threat. They said that? Yeah. And okay. I was like, so I can't even what a I can't even fold blankets in the Air Force. I couldn't even be an Air Force quartermaster. And they were like, you cannot join the Air Force, period. So he marched me next door to the Army recruiting office. And I've always, uh, after all of these things happen... I'm a firm believer of everything happens for a reason. Oh yeah, everything. What's kind of crazy about you saying that? Like, I in my boot camp platoon, we had a dude that didn't even speak English. He wrote all of his notes in Chinese. <laughs> like, didn't know any English. Yeah, and that dude was allowed to join the Marine Corps. <laughs> well, that was the Marines. <laughs> <laughs> Could he eat crayons? I don't know, but I someone did tell me that. That uh, he had to go through a very extensive like FBI background check. How did he fill out the background check? Not in English. I don't know. Oh, That's a good question. Well, <laughs> well, the Air Force wouldn't take an Australian, so that's that. Okay. Uh, they marched me next door to the Army recruiting office. I talked to the guy, and uh, I was kind of like. Oh, God damn it. Like, if I'm going to do this <laughs> right out of the gate, I want Ranger on my contract. I want to go out of infantry school, Ranger school into sniper school. Right. And the recruiter's like, oh, you can't do that. And I'm like, well, like, then I'm not joining. And he's like, oh, but you could be a dental assistant. And I'm like, no. <laughs> Ain't and, no danger of and I was like, getting I've, classified documents as a dental assistant. Yeah, I've like, I've already done all this. <laughs> I know the games you guys play. I'm not really that interested if I'm joining, this is what it's going to be. And he didn't like me because I wasn't an easy number yeah. for him. So anyway, all of that happened. Uh, 
while I'm waiting to figure all this out, uh, my friend Anthony from Australia, uh, who's a, one of Australia's leading gunsmiths, uh, calls me up and he's like, hey, you want to go to the biggest gun show in the world? I'm like, yeah, send me, let's go. He's like, it's in Vegas. Uh, it's called SHOT Show and you need to be in the industry to get in. And he's like, I can put you down as an employee of my business and then we'll go to SHOT Show. And I'm like, yeah, hell yeah. So uh, 2018 January, we came down to SHOT Show uh, and, and did that. Um, and for those that don't know, SHOT Show, it probably is the biggest gun show in the world. Yeah, it is. You can't buy anything. Yeah. It's all uh, the newest Glock hand grip. It's like a giant networking event yeah. for people in the industry. Yeah. Yeah. But if you've never even seen an MP5 in person, then that's the place to go. Mm -hmm. And that was me at that time. So I thought it was awesome. We did SHOT Show. Um, uh, but we were in Vegas and we're like, let's see Vegas. What are we going to do? Well, I want to go to every single casino in Vegas. So I went into every single casino on the strip, all of them. Uh, whether it was walking through the door for two minutes, getting a photo, and then leaving, uh, we did every casino on the strip. Do you feel fulfilled? No, <laughs> <laughs> but I did that. Uh, and then uh, we seen this like I can't remember where we saw it, but you can shoot machine guns in Vegas. Um, and I was like, dude, I want to shoot a minigun. I was in the military six years. I'd never even seen a minigun. We all know the minigun from Predator and Terminator. I want to shoot a minigun. I want it on video. I want to keep fucking bullets out of it. I want to shoot a minigun. Uh, and then we look it up, and this Vegas has a bunch of machine gun ranges, but only one of them has the minigun, and that is Battlefield Vegas. So that's how that was my first sort of introduction to Battlefield. Uh, and we saw how much it was and I was like, I will eat McDonald's and starve myself to find <laughs> that $200 because I want to shoot a minigun. I want to shoot a Thompson with a 50-round drum and I want to shoot the gun that killed Velociraptors in Jurassic Park, the Spastwell. <laughs> so we went to Battlefield Vegas and we did that. Uh, but uh, while we were at Battlefield, at that time I was working, again, I was the maintenance man in the Sheridan Hotel in Portland I just wasn't fulfilled. I wasn't happy. I wasn't making friends. And I go to Battlefield and I see, other than the guns and the just, just the wild, like, you can't do this shit anywhere else in the world, dude. This is crazy. Uh, other than that, what I saw was the RSOs, range safety officers, who were all veterans wearing uniforms. Uh, they were all giving each other shit. And I was like, dude, I miss this. I, I miss the, the culture. And I, out of curiosity, and that's all it was at the time, I said to my RSO, a uh, dude named Roland, who we both know. We're in his house right now. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, I said, how do you get a job here? And uh, me being ignorant, I think you've got to be some kind of NRA range dude. <laughs> you've got to be high up in the industry. And Battlefield's like the best that is not the case. <laughs> it's like you just put in a, he's from Guam. He's a little C Mexican. It's like you just put in a resume, bro. So all the way from Portland, Oregon, I put in a resume thinking they're never gonna call me. They called me back and two weeks later I was 
were ready to up and leave Portland, Oregon and move down to Vegas. Um, got the job at Battlefield. and I remember walking in. I should note that at this point, this is where me and Taylor met. Yes. At Battlefield. Yeah, I remember walking in to work um, and there was you and I just hear this Australian voice. <laughs> and I'm like, what the frick? Yeah. And then Roland walked in and he was like, Confused because he just told you put in a resume, dude. Yeah. He's just like, get the frick out of here. Yeah, yeah. And then we became best friends, and that's now right. we're now yeah. here. We are no Battlefield's first Australian. That's right. Yeah, yeah. You were. I th- I'm pretty sure you were the first legit foreigner that actually worked there. We had like other people that were British or whatever. That mm. or no, Danny would have been the first. Huh? Yeah, Danny. Danny's uh, a testament to. A, a foreign go-getter who realized you can't do this stuff where I'm from, so he did right. it. But uh, yeah, me and Danny are really the only mm-hmm. f- true foreigners at Battlefield. Yeah, it was really cool. But it, yeah, we had to. There's a vetting process. We yeah. were like, "Who's this guy?" Because yeah. we were. It was the. It was you know everybody's vet. I yeah. think at the time most of us were combat vets, mm-hmm. and so like it was a real tight knit kind of group. And then you showed up, and we're like, "All right." But you were pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. You're pretty cool. Without uh, you in the club. That's right. Um, and I made the Anzac package. That's right. Yeah. Talk, talk about that. So, once again, uh, America really is, and, and I, I want to say at this point that um, the general perception right now is that we're in a bad way. Um, a lot of the I guess you would say traditional Americans are kind of jaded about where we're at. I will say as a foreigner, even right now, America is still the land of opportunity. You can do anything you want. Yeah. Um, totally agree with that. Yeah. Uh, I will never take that away from America. Um, and so here we are. I'm in RSO now uh, at Battlefield, running guns, running customers. And I wasn't there a month until I noticed how many Australians and New Zealanders were coming through the door. And the cashiers would tell them, uh, request Scott as your RSO because he's from Australia. Um, And they would, and, you know, I would do that. And I realized uh, we had all these weapons that Australia uh, used, World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and modern. Uh, But it wasn't portrayed in that sense um, because the guys who run Battlefield, they don't know about other cultures. Um, They absolutely make an effort, but to have a real foreigner come in and say, hey, let's make a package that caters specifically to the proud Anzac tradition that Australia and New Zealand has. Um, So I said to him, let's make the Anzac package. And essentially, again, for those that don't know, you come into Battlefield as a customer, you kind of it's a machine gun rental range. Um, and if you want to shoot anything, if you played video games, if you watched Stargate as a kid, whatever, you can probably shoot that gun and get a photo with it. Um, I wanted the opportunity, uh, again, because of the tough gun laws in New Zealand and Australia. Um, uh, and we're not going to go down that road, but all of the firearms that our ancestors, fathers, granddads, and great-granddads used are not available for Australians to even handle. And rightfully so, that's the case back home. Um, But that's still history. That's still a part of history. 
And to fully understand history is to experience it, the smells, the feels. Um, and America has that opportunity, so why not give that opportunity to Australians and New Zealanders? So the guns were already there. They were just unlisted, so we, I gripped up all of the firearms that, all of the most popular firearms that the Anzacs used from World War I to now and created the Anzac package. So as an Australian or New Zealander, you can come into Battlefield, get the Anzac package, and shoot a good majority of the firearms that your ancestors would have used from Gallipoli to Kokoda to Long Tan in Vietnam all the way up to the 90s. You can shoot them now. Yeah. So. Uh, was the, Did you ever put the Owen gun on that? Yes. Yeah, so that was another land of opportunity must. Uh, Battlefield has a lot of firearms. Um, I, I don't know off the top of my head the shit volume we have. I knew at one point, at least when I was there, it was over 600 different. Yeah. There's not many guns we don't have. Um, and uh, But we didn't have the Owen gun. And again, for those that don't know, the Owen gun is a submachine gun that Australia designed and manufactured out of necessity for the jungles in World War II. And it was made by or designed by a guy in his garage. Um, and it is an incredibly remarkable, reliable, close quarters jungle warfare submachine gun. Um, it looks weird. Um, it's a strange looking firearm. Uh, but you talk to any veteran from that time and they will bring up the Owen gun and it's testament to reliability. Well, Battlefield didn't have one and I'm just an RSO. All I do is I'm a range safety officer. I run guns at that time. Uh, we went to uh, SAR show, which is the big annual gun show down in Phoenix, uh, which Battlefield will go to every year. Um, and that's where we would buy a lot of the parts that we need to keep the range going. A lot of the rare exotic firearms, such as Vickers firing pins and MG42 trunnions and so on and so forth, we would find those rare parts at Sasha to feed the range for the next year. Well, we found two Owen gun parts kits and I went to the owner of Battlefield and I'm not a gunsmith. I don't build guns. I haven't ever built a firearm. And I said to the owner, I'm like, hey, this dude over here at this other table has two Owen guns for sale. Uh, let's do it. And he's like, yeah, kid, sounds good to me. And he bought these two parts kits. And then I said, hey, man, uh, uh, it'd be a huge honor for me as an Australian to say I got to build one of our nation's very own uh, firearms. Um, and because of the gun laws in Australia, uh, those are all gone. They're all taken away. They're prohibited. Uh, probably no one in Australia has had that opportunity uh, but because, even even your bud, who's a gunsmith in Australia, mm. that, has he ever? No, uh, to my knowledge, yeah, he's never come across an Owen gun. Um, I'm sure I would have heard about it if he did. Yeah, um, and even then, it's if he could, there's still restrictions there. Um, you know, uh, so again, uh, the generosity of the guys at Battlefield, the owner and. America being what it is, uh, he tr even though I had no gunsmithing skills, he trusted me to take the ball and run with it, and I got to build the one, uh, the two only Owen guns that Battlefield has to factory spec, fully working, fully automatic submachine guns, 
that are now in the Anzac package. So that was another tick in the box. Right. Um, uh, satisfaction that I got to do. So we're starting to see a pattern here. Yeah. Like this, the, the like snowball effect of your life and where it's leading and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so, this is the start of the podcast now. Yeah, now yeah. is the start of the podcast. If you made it this far, you <laughs> now you get to the good stuff. <laughs> um, so the next big thing was a, a huge project that the owner of Battlefield, he had bought a, a tank. Right. But it was totally jacked up, and yeah. so that's where you come in. Yeah, so um, Battlefield started as a machine gun rental range. Uh, very successfully, and the owners were two guys who own gun stores. One of those guys' uh, wife as well. Um, fortunately, one of those guys is no longer with us, um, and he left the scene of Battlefield. And Battlefield's now run by a husband and wife couple. Uh, but as time went on, they they wanted to branch out from just firearms. And kind of do like a museum type deal. Uh, and he had one or two tanks, but they would just start out tanks, uh, you know, just tanks everybody had already had. And he brought this Sherman tank. Uh, I won't say where he got it from, but it was just, it was a mess. It was just pure rust. Uh, it was a Sherman tank. For those that don't know, the Sherman was the... America's main medium tank of World War II, very high in numbers, produced a lot of them. Um, it was so bad that when it, I wasn't here at the time, but when it showed up at Battlefield, they couldn't even pull it off the truck because the tracks were just seized. They had to hire a crane and lift it off the truck. Uh, it went into the shop and the owner just had wild aspirations of having this thing <laughs> like driving, shooting, and this thing looked like it had been sunk with the Titanic and just floated recently. <laughs> uh, I saw photos of it from back then and I saw remnants of it. Um, but I remember coming as a customer when we shot the minigun, uh, we kind of went for a walk down in the tank lot and we saw one of the bays open and inside the bay was this Sherman tank. And it was the first time I'd ever saw a Sherman and I was like, wow, look at this thing. Some guy, some lucky guy is here, like, restoring this thing. Um, at that time, it just had, it had been sandblasted. It had primer on it, and it had running gear, like the road wheels and the track. But that is it. The turret was gone. The hatches were gone. Everything was gone. And I just remember seeing it way back then. Um, so I knew it was there when I got the job. Um uh, and then I'd only been at Battlefield a couple of months, uh, a month even. And I said to the owner, I'm like, what's the story with this tank? He's like, oh, it's a Sherman. It's, it's. And at the time, we didn't know what we had. It was just another Sherman. And for those that are new uh, the in the tank world, there's a lot of Shermans out there. You know, just the generic yeah. green one with his... You're probably going to see one if you go to some World War II yeah. museum. There's yeah. a Sherman sitting there. Right. Yeah. Well, um, I just thought, what a cool thing to be part of. And I went up to the owner and I was like, what have I got to do to be part of this? You know, I'll grease track, whatever. I just want to say that I worked on a, a Sherman. 
And he goes, oh, well, actually, I can't find anybody that wants to work on it. I'm having trouble getting staff to work on it. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And he's like, uh, Battlefield's main mechanical um, area is the Humvees. We do a free Humvee pickup off the strip. And the mechanics have a full-time job maintaining those. Um, and they bring customers in the door. So a tank is kind of like a secondary. Um, so we had a couple of guys from the National Guard who'd come in on weekends and work on it, but it was no real sort of push. Um, and he said, yeah, come in on the weekends, work on it. And I was like, yeah, I'll volunteer. And he's like, no, no, like overtime, work on it. It's like, wow. So I show up day one. I was probably only at Battlefield a month. On my first Saturday off off the range clock to find the guy who's in charge of the Sherman. And I meet him and he'd done an incredible job uh, putting the engine into it. But he's like, I'm not a history guy. I don't care about tanks. I'm an engine guy. I'm doing the engine, but that's it. He's like, the rest is on you. And I was like, so the Sherman became my thing. Mm -hmm. No one else was doing it. Um, and at the time, he'd already had this Sherman for two or three years. And it was it had taken two or three years just to get it sandblasted, pulled apart, and get an engine in it. Um, so I'd do weekends on the Sherman and then weeks on the range. And in 2019, when we were just bowling... Mm -hmm. uh, rolling in money um, the world hadn't gone to shit yet uh, I was doing 40 hours a week on the range and then I'd come in and do another 2 or 3 13 hour days on the show um, and I, I started on the turret because the other guy was doing the power plant and I started on the turret and just kept going and um Somewhere along the line, uh, one of the guys in the community, Chris Hughes, who's known as Toadman, he's a tank or military vehicle photographer, came in and he actually identified some brackets on the tank because it was all rust. There was no paint, yeah. there was no markings. Like I wish people, I mean, even if there was video to this mm -hmm. podcast, like I wish people could really see oh, like yeah. what the like the work that went into yeah. to this thinking thing. Well, they could see it, but they, they still wouldn't understand. <laughs> uh, uh, Chris was the one that said, this tank is not just a Sherman. You guys have a very, very rare piece here. And we were like, well, what, what do you know? And he goes, it doesn't make sense uh, because it's a Marine Corps Sherman. Uh, however, due to all the records that we have, and he, Chris is very high up in the tank Right. Uh, community. He knows any tank, anywhere, who has it, how much it's sold for. You know, uh, he knows a lot about that stuff. He says there are no Marine Corps Shermans. Uh, there's one out there, but it never left the States. It was a training tank. Uh, all the Marine Corps Shermans that were on the islands were either left on the island or dumped in the ocean or scrapped in Japan after the war. None of them came back. But this Sherman bears all of the modifications and, and, and markings of an Iwo Jima Sherman tank. And we're like, well, this can't be true. Like, how, how did this happen? So I began to dive into it and probably for 18 months, I was up at 3 and 4 a.m. in the morning trolling the internet, looking for photos, looking for information, emailing people and... 
uh, sure enough, every piece of the puzzle started falling into place that the shaman could have potentially been on Iwo Jima. Um, and it wasn't until we were pretty far into the project, we hadn't painted it yet, but it was starting to come together. Was it running yet? Yeah, it drove. Okay. Yeah, but it was it was a turd. Like, you know, it was <laughs> shitty steering. It was overheating. Um, it still needed a lot of work. And uh, I can't remember who it was. Someone found this photo of a knocked out Sherman on Iwo Jima. And the thing you got to understand about tanks on Iwo Jima is unlike Europe, um, on Iwo Jima, the Marines had a very, very, very specific set of modifications that they did to the tanks. So much so that each battalion on Iwo Jima had their own modifications. For example, very quickly, the 4th Tank Battalion had cages welded around the hatches. The 5th Tank Battalion had spikes. The 3rd Tank Battalion had nothing. Um, and then that particular model of Sherman was only used on Iwo Jima and Okinawa, not any of the previous campaigns. So things started to kind of line up that this tank had those modifications uh, that weren't done in the States. They were done in Hawaii um, or in Guam on the way to Iwo Jima. And everything just kept, everything just kept falling into place. And someone found a photo, a black and white photo of this tank that was knocked out on Iwo Jima. Uh, and then we found a, I said, I, we think this is our tank because it had a whole, a, 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 a Japanese anti-tank round went through the turret bearing race with the turret traversed exactly at, I believe it was one or two o'clock. Well, our tank had hits in that exact spot. Um, and then I got a photo from the owner of the Sherman when it first showed up at Battlefield before anyone had touched it. It was all rusted. The fenders were all bent. The light brackets were all bent. But they were bent in very specific sort of ways. And then I'd look at this black and white photo from Iwo Jima to where it was exactly the same. And I was like, there's no doubt in there's my no mind. freaking way. <laughs> this, is, this, this is the same tank. This is 100% the same tank. Um, and then we started diving further into what modifications the Marines did and why they did them. And our tank just, the dots just kept connecting. Um, so I can't, there's a reason that I can't describe why we got the tank, uh, but... Uh, Everything fell into place, and it makes sense as to why. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like you searched this out. Mm. <laughs> like, this is just like stars aligned. You yeah. end up with this stinking thing, yeah. and like it just happens to be this rare gem. Yeah, so we, I found, uh, and then I just, I, at that point I realized my first restoration job is like the king of <laughs> restorations. <laughs> Like there's guys who've been doing this for a lifetime who haven't even come close to the historical significance of a tank like this. Not and then not to mention like how jacked up this thing was oh, when was you got bad. it. I mean, it was like yeah. you wouldn't. I mean, other than the general shape of it, you wouldn't know that it's like a Sherman. No, yeah, I can't take all the credit for it. Like there were other guys part of the project. Uh, yeah, but I did. 
the majority of how it looks. Yeah. Like I didn't do the engine and I didn't pull it apart, but the way that it looks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, again, uh, I felt responsible. Uh, again, I'm not even American. And this tank comes from one of America's greatest uh, uh, military campaigns. Um, and then the flag raising on Iwo Jima, all the Marines know about it. Uh, but most people know about that photo, the famous photo in war of the guys putting the flag up on the mountaintop. That is on Iwo Jima. Well, this tank was present for that photo. Uh, when that photo was taken, this tank was at the bottom of the hill providing support by fire. And here's this Australian idiot from Sydney with no <laughs> skills or qualifications who with got 38 told, holes in his head. Right. <laughs> who got told to fix it. I'm like, man, I can't. I got to get this right. Yeah, you went from just I want to touch a minigun. Yeah. To yeah, building this crazy right. thing. Right. Yeah. So the land of opportunity, there it is. Um, um did so Let's see here. So you did that. When was the the Vulcan? When you started working on the Vulcan? Was this during the same time? Cuz I know you had uh, mu- multiple things yeah that you started um, working on at the same time. Uh the Vulcan was before the Sherman was finished. So, um, yeah, we'll get to the Vulcan in a second. But, um, yeah, the Sherman became my whole reason for existence and probably the cause of my divorce, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which which we won't get into, but... um, (laughs) I was doing the Sherman on the weekends and I was RSOing during the week. And um, again, due to various reasons, uh, we have a company policy. We don't discuss um, where we conduct our deals, where they come from. Uh, But we came across a Vulcan Canon parts kit. Um, Again, for those that don't know, a Vulcan is, it's kind of like a big minigun. It's a rotary Canon 20 millimeter that is the main machine gun, if you will, um, in all our modern fighter aircraft, F-16, F-A-18, F-14, you know. Uh, we came across a parts kit, one of those. Uh, we pieced it together and um, a good friend of mine um, essentially put that together and got it firing, um, but they couldn't figure out the feed system for it. And uh, there was a video that went viral of the Vulcan on a Prius, which was like a black rifle coffee coffee company marketing campaign. Uh, Well, when that was filmed and done, uh, the owner wanted to mount that Vulcan onto an APC. And uh, he was told that it couldn't be done. And uh, again, I saw an opportunity. (laughs) I was like, hey, boss... uh, I'm not going to give you any guarantees, but I think I can do this. So he, again, he trusted me with no experience. We had guys who worked at Battlefield who were in the Navy who were loaders on the SeaWiz Vulcan. And we had some Air Force guy who had loaded ammo in Vulcans before. Uh, they weren't allowed anywhere near the same. <laughs> uh, but for some reason, uh, he trusted me to look at it and figure it out. And I mounted it onto an APC and got the Vulcan fully functional with the feed system and all of it. And we took it to the Big Sandy machine gun shoot. 
In 2018. And, and that's in Arizona, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, after the Vulcan was put together, uh, me and the owner had a chat and he was like, you don't need to be on that range anymore. You are, this is where you belong. You do very well here. Uh, and I was like, yes, absolutely. I would love to do this full time, build stuff. So he cut me loose off the range and I began... I essentially became the first guy at Battlefield that was uh, wholly and solely responsible for all the special toys, uh, all these tanks, all these restorations, and uh, anything that is above 20 millimeter, I became kind of the responsible for. Yeah, because Battlefield has artillery piece and stuff too. They do now, yeah. 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 Um, and he just, he didn't have anyone who knew about that, and... Uh, Shooting that stuff is no joke. Uh, guys have been seriously injured or killed uh, messing that up. And I saw a problem at Battlefield. I was like, we don't have anybody uh, that... We need to have somebody that knows about this stuff and can put all the safety checks and make sure everything's good to go and dialed in and conduct operations. And that is their sure. job. Yeah, because I mean, I think the once it... Everything started to come to fruition with the the Sherman tank, and then and then the Vulcan cannon and stuff like that. Like, there started to get a lot of publicity about all of these crazy, all this crazy weaponry that could be shot now. Yeah, the history behind it. I think that's a big reason why you were so successful with the Sherman was because you're you're a history buff. Yeah, like I remember talking with you. You know, you'd just be deep diving into YouTube and yeah, old manuals and stuff for yeah. tanks and stuff and you're yeah. just like obsessed with it yeah. um i think that was a huge reason why you were successful with refurbishing the tank because it's you can tell it the little details in it it was stuff that you had researched about that that one marine division and what they mm -hmm. did with this tank and here's the thing uh i i couldn't put words to it but a very good friend of mine uh dimitri who's now on our team and another foreigner <laughs> <laughs> that has become very successful at Battlefield. Yeah. Said to me, uh, he's like, guys are into cars and radio control planes and boats and whatever. Uh, he's like, all of that is great, but the difference in weapons, aircraft, and tanks is they actually form history. They have an active... Uh, part in shaping our history. You know, if you restore a Buick, that's great. Uh, good for you. That's your passion. Uh, but when you were a sore tank that has historical significance, that shed blood, that tank actually shaped where we are now. Mm -hmm. It had an active part in where we are. Um, and to get a rusty piece of metal that's long forgotten and bring that back to its its former glory, uh, it becomes several things. Uh, it becomes an educational piece uh, because people can read stuff, they can watch a documentary and they might take it in, but they still don't really get it uh, when they come up to a piece that's been there and seen it and they can touch it, smell it, drive it, shoot it. They gain a whole new 
they gave they gain a whole new level of uh, a motivation to learn more about it, and that's how you save history. Um, and then, I mean, because you've worked on since then, you've worked on how many different tanks from. So, so since that Sherman, uh, we've now produced seven or eight major restorations for Battlefield. And the collection at Battlefield is now very historically rich. And we highlight uh, all of that. What are, what are some of those vehicles now that you have? Um, so in addition to the Sherman, which is untouchable, that's our true gem, um, our second uh, close second or third would be the Syrian T-62, which um, when uh, in the 70s, Syria and Egypt paired up and tried to invade Israel by force. And it became one of the most, uh, one of the largest conventional warfare battles since World War II. Uh, we got one of the Syrian tanks from that battle. It's, it's covered in bullets and hits. Uh, we restored that. Got that fully functional, fully operational, and that is now the largest firing tank in private hands anywhere. Yeah, because it's not just driving it; it's the turret moves. Everything. You can shoot it. Everything the night works. vision works in it. Everything. Um, and then we have one of the more exciting projects would be we have a twin forty millimeter Bofors naval gun, which was on board the USS Cabot, which was an escort carrier in World War II. So this exact gun was an anti-aircraft gun on the ship that probably shot down Zeros and enemy fighters from the Japanese. We now have that gun, which we're, again, it looks like it was dug up off the Titanic, <laughs> uh, but we're restoring that to be fully functional and fully operational. There's something I forgot to, to hit on with the Iwo Jima tank was the specific type of tank that it was. Uh, how do you mean the how it was the flamethrower tank? Yeah. Um, again, so the way that we were able to identify that was specifically a Fifth Marine Division tank was the modifications that it had on it, um, and it had this on the right hand side. It had this add-on armored plate, and when we first got it, we didn't know what it was. We thought it was some kind of field repair. The arm had got fractured, whatever. And the boss had even contemplated like cutting it off and just fixing it. Uh, it turns out that um, only a few tanks on Iwo Jima were issued with the bow gun flamethrower. Uh, and those tanks had an additional armor plate welded onto the right cheek of the tank which was an armor plate to protect the napalm fuel cell, which was inside the tank near the dry, uh, near the, the, the bow gunner. Um, our tank had that additional armor plate, which is also in the black and white photo. Uh, and then inside the tank, it had brackets on the wall where the original fuel cell for the flamethrower was mounted. Which so. makes it even more rare. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we found uh, one of seven remaining in existence bow gun flamethrowers left and only two of the seven are actually operational and shooting we found one of those uh brought it to battlefield 
went through it, got it operational, and it now shoots the flamethrower as well. Dude. <laughs> but it's, it's uh, just they, uh, we, we, we were able to, one of the biggest honors of my life was tracking down two of the veterans who were tank crewmen on Iwo Jima in that, in that tank battalion. And we have video footage uh, interviewing these guys. Um, and I conducted the interview and it's some insane level stuff uh, that'll soon be released at some point. Um, it confirmed a lot of what we were suspicious about the tank and they confirmed it. Uh, and it was some of the most eye-opening content I think that has ever been filmed because um, when I was doing the research for this tank, you know, I was curious about who did these modifications. Was it, was it these 19-year-old kid Marines in the tank? Was it the mechanics from the unit? Were they getting ordered to do it? Could they choose to do it? Um, why did they paint it this color, not that color? Why did, you know, all these questions that are very, very specific to uh, Marine Corps tank operations in World War II. And um, I, I had so many questions and I read every book, every documentary and couldn't find the answers. Um, and for the longest time, I was just lost as to why does this tank have this or that? Uh, and I met these veterans who were some incredible guys uh, of the greatest generation. And uh, their sons came with them. Their sons are in their 60s, you know. They're even old. Their sons kind of escorted them to the interview that we did. And one of the guys, Leighton, uh, he normally does like a talk on World War II at schools and that sort of thing. And it's just very general, though, like when was Iwo Jima right. and, and what they did, basically. Uh, he, his son says to me, when you do this interview, just be careful. Um, he's kind of got his routine that he does. Just let him talk. And I said, with all due respect, uh, no, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Uh, I want to know about his experience specifically to tanks. Yeah. Uh, because we have information here that doesn't exist anywhere else. And he said, well, this is your warning. He either probably won't remember it or won't talk about it. And I said, yeah, that's fine. Like, I can edit it out. Mm -hmm. It's not a problem. Uh, and I asked him I asked him about his upbringing in the Depression, uh, how that shaped him to handle World War II, where he was when Pearl Harbor happened, what his thoughts were, why he joined the Marines, why he went into tanks specifically. And then we went into very, very, like, tank nerd level stuff. Like... Uh, when did you first see the tank that you were issued for Iwo Jima? Uh, where did you put your sleeping gear? Did you even get sleeping gear? What weapons were you issued, like small arms? Um, and then I was an armoured warfare specialist in the Australian Army, so I already had kind of like a gauge of what to ask him specifically to armoured warfare. Because of the questions that I asked them, they told stories that their families had never heard. And we got information out of these guys that would have otherwise been totally lost. And at the end of the interview, they said they'd never talked about it because they thought nobody really cared. 
And a good part of that's true. Mm-hmm. Most people aren't going to care about. Yeah, that's why he's got his routine. It's just very yeah. low level. Yeah. Yeah, most people don't care about where they slept at night. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, we now have access to that, and we have it recorded and interviewed, and it'll be out there. Was that part of the same portion that I helped film with? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. It's in the. Yeah. I think the raw footage was about four hours. Yeah. So I got to trim That'll through be, it all. Yeah. Yeah, that's so wild, man. That was so crazy. I know they signed the they signed the Iwo Jima tank. Yeah. The interview in front of it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's so crazy, man. That was an honor. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was. I don't know, man. I, there's there's only like a handful of those dudes left. Yeah. Like World War II vets are almost all gone. Yeah, one of the guys that signed the tank is already. He died three months after we did that interview, dude. So. <sighs> He's gone. Yeah, I remember it was a risk getting them on the plane to come out. It was, but like, they 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 loved it. Yeah, uh, they since sent us letters and uh, Jim, the guy that died, who was a gunner on Iwo Jima, uh, he fired the Sherman again when he was with oh, us. Oh, did he? Yeah. Oh man, and he died a happy man. <laughs> That's really yeah. cool, man. Yep. Um, you have done. Some pretty wild stuff as far as refurbishing tanks, but what are some of the other crazy things that you've got to do because of all this? Um, so because of Battlefield, um, it taught me that it is possible for a nobody like me to gain access to do whatever, almost anything I want. Um, and I learned that there's a skill set in itself about um, you, there's a saying that you find the door and you walk through it. It's a skill set just finding the door. And when you find the door, how do you walk through it? And if the door's not open, how do you break the door down and get through it? Um, so since Battlefield, um, that lost feeling I had from the army is long gone. I've done, I've lived 10 lifetimes in the last (laughs) four or five years. Um, Since Battlefield, I've been part of another crazy event called Bomber Camp. Uh, Bomber Camp is an activity uh, held by a remarkable uh, organization in Stockton, California, where once a year they acquire airworthy uh, World War II bombers such as B-17 and B-24. And for two or three days, we get customers in who sign up to the event and they essentially enlist as a bomber crew for two or three days and they literally step back in time. Um, They're issued a uniform, they're issued a World War II mess canteen, um, they're put in World War II classroom environment um, only 1940s music is allowed to be played. <laughs> we have an incredible reenactment crew that is kind of sets the scene. And the first half of the day, we kind of teach them lessons of uh, using the World War II Norton bombsite, aerial navigation. Um, my part is aerial gunnery instruction. And then the second half of the day, we go out onto the airstrip to an airworthy B-17 or a B-24. Um, we load bombs into the plane. Um, they're inert uh, concrete bombs. 
and then we go up in flight and actually conduct a mission. So we'll fly, uh, we'll only be at a cruising altitude of 2,000 feet. We'll fly over a target and the customers actually file through the Norton bombsite, um, use the skills they were taught earlier in the day and they actually drop a 250 pound bomb onto a target. Um, then they'll come into the back of the plane, they'll get in the ball turret in flight, uh, then they'll go into the waist and they'll shoot a 50 cal machine gun out of the waist gun and they'll move through all the different parts of the plane um, in flight. So uh, because of my experiences at Battlefield, fortunately I was brought on as the aerial gunnery instructor armorer for bomber camp. Um, since that time, I've flown three missions in Witchcraft, which is one of two flying B-24s left in the world. Um, I flew three missions on 909, which is sadly, very sadly, the B-17 that crashed in 2019, and we lost most of the crew. The pilot was killed. Um, and then more recently this year, we got the B-17 out of the Ericsson collection in Oregon, uh, Ye Old Pub. And we put bombs and guns in Yale Pub and took her up. And for the first time since World War II, she dropped bombs and shot guns again. Yeah. So Just like, making history left and right, huh? Yeah. yeah <laughs> I did that. Yeah. And I'm going <clears> to, <throat> if you follow my Instagram, um, I'm going to be posting some pictures and stuff that Scott has sent me. Yeah. So if you want to see some pictures of the, the aircraft and everything, yeah. I'll be posting them up on there. But um, yeah, well, and then recently, which one was it that in... That just there was an accident uh, that happened. Yeah, Texas Raiders. Yeah, uh, the air crash twenty twenty three, early twenty three. Yeah, um, that was another B seventeen. We've lost two B seventeens in the last three or four years. Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely it's tragic, obviously, because there's people flying these things. Yeah, um, but it's like it, it's uh, to that community. I'm sure it's just devastating because it's it's not only the people, but it's that history. Yeah. The, these these are historical relics that are being flown and stuff, and then they crash, and it's like... Here's oh, the man. thing. Texas, Texas Raiders was one of the finest restorations of any plane in the air. She was beautiful. Um, but if somehow you were able to talk to the crew that was killed, they would tell you they knew the risks, but they got to... They died doing what they love. And knowing those risks, uh, those of us that uh, have a love and passion for aviation will continue to uh, practice that. Um, and they, they wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, so sure. it's like if you were to go skydiving and I told you there is... A low risk, but a risk that your parachute will not open and you will die. Would you still go skydiving? Yeah, especially if that's like your life. Yeah, you love it's, it. It's, You're it's obsessed your, with it. It was yeah. your choice to do that, and you died doing what you love. Mm -hmm. um, the aviation community will continue to to um, practice their craft and their passion and do what they love. Yeah, they won't let something like that, uh, be it a freak accident. Uh, stop them doing what they love. So you had said something about people were thinking that you might have been on that plane when it happened. What yeah. Um, so a lot of close friends of mine knew I'd done bomber camp. Uh, this has happened twice now. Um, 
I'd done Bomber Camp back in 2019 and 909 was the name of the B-17 that crashed in October, I believe it was October of 2019. Uh, that was the one that crashed. Uh, they landed successfully, but they had an engine failure in the air, but they were the pilot, Mac, who was very, very skilled, was able to land, uh, but they lost control on the ground. And that was the one that plowed into the de-icing facility. Uh, the crew chief was able to get a few people out of the waste, um, but they lost several lives in that crash. Um, I had a text message from one of the bomber camp guys. It wasn't five minutes after that happened. I said, 909's gone. And I was kind of like, what? what are you talking about? And he said, it'll be on the news soon, but 909's crashed. Um, pilot was killed, tri-pilot killed. Um, and then 20 minutes later, um, I get 30 or 40 text messages like, oh, look at this crash. Uh, were, were you here? And I was like, no, I wasn't. But I was on 909 a couple of months earlier. Yeah. Well, uh, same thing again um, because of my involvement in the limited involvement. In I'm not a pilot or an aviator by any means, but I do delve into that area. Um, when Texas Raiders went down, I was getting messages almost instantly. Hey, man, are you are you all good? Were you on that flight? I was like, no, I've never worked with Texas Raiders. But uh, yeah. It's pretty crazy, though, to go from Sydney, Australia yeah. to like just the fact that you're mentioned in the same sentence from an event like that in this industry. And it was all because you were like, Hey, Roland, how do I work here? <laughs> yeah. yeah, everything happens for a reason. Yeah. That's right. And it didn't stop there. Like, we haven't even discussed business yet. Sure. Um, but I suppose, what time is it? I suppose now would be the time to move into that. Yeah. It's, it's, I could probably have you on for freaking six hours because you, <laughs> there's so many things that we've brushed over that you've, yeah. that you've got the opportunity to do. I do want to ask you though, um, what was the thing? Because I could remember there was a, a Mars rover or something. Yeah. Um, so that was due to another dear friend of mine who was responsible for getting me on to bomber camp in the first place. Uh, he restored one of the B-17s way back in the day. Um, called, it was the B-17 that the Evergreen collection had. Um which is now awaiting its airworthiness certificate uh, to be fully flight. Um, he says to me, hey, uh, because of a guy I worked with back in the 80s at the Air Museum, who's now at NASA, um, we have an opportunity to be on the next Mars mission I was like, what are you talking about? I'm not going to Mars. I'm busy. <laughs> and he's like, no, I'm serious. Like, there's um, a mission going to Mars on the Mars rover. And I got the names of all the bomber camp guys in the aviation community with the, the, the B-17 uh, on this plaque that is on the Mars rover that the Mars rover is going to leave on Mars. So your name is going to be on Mars. <laughs> I was like, what? And COVID hits 
And I was like, oh, God damn it. <laughs> but I'd never seen a space launch and uh, the Mars rover mission launched. Uh, it was July 2020, middle of COVID. Right in the middle. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to see the launch. Yeah. Uh, we'll walk there. I don't care. <laughs> um, so, and we were all supposed to meet there and watch the launch, but I was the only one that made it. Um, yeah, I mean, the other dudes at Bomber Camp are all older. Yeah, they were older so and they had stuff going on yeah. and whatever. And um, I was recently divorced, so I needed something to do. And so I made my way to Florida in the middle of COVID when everyone was bunkered down. Um, got to Cape Canaveral and watched my name on a rover shoot off to Mars. That's so crazy, and dude. At some point when the, ro- the rover's already back, um, but at some point the rover will go into a public display somewhere sure. in the Smithsonian. I'll go and check it out. That's so I got crazy. a little plaque and a little certificate and all that stuff. Yeah, I think you showed me the picture of it launching. You're standing yeah. there. Yep. Yeah. So, so I saw a space launch. My name was on it. That was cool. The, the, the story just gets crazier and crazier. <laughs> <laughs> so all of this leading into the actual business part. I guess this okay. is a business podcast, so I, we could talk about the business yeah, we probably a little should. bit. should. Yeah. yeah. Two hours later. Yeah. Um, the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> if you're still here Screw the Dos Equis guy. This is, yeah. this is Scott Ricard. I try. <laughs> um, so what do you do now for your business? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know what my job is. Uh, oh, boy. So, again, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger said he is anything but a self-made man. And I would 100% agree with that sentiment because everything that I have achieved is because somebody else uh, trusted me and offered me the opportunity and or helped me or funded me get there. Uh, I believe it was 2022, maybe 2021. Um, the owner of Battlefield saw the value in some of his best employees. One was myself. One was now my business partner, uh, John Blay, a former Marine. Uh, he was also Battlefield's lead gunsmith. He built a large majority of all the machine guns that run on Battlefield today. Uh, the owner of Battlefield came to us and he said, I have an opportunity. I'm old. I'm wanting to wind down. I don't have time for this, but I would love to do it. Uh, I would rather offer you guys the chance. Uh, I will give you exclusive access and exclusive rights to rent all of my firearms, my uniforms, and all my vehicles and equipment to Hollywood TV and film production. Are you guys interested? Uh, he took us out to lunch. Of course, the answer was yes. <laughs> yeah, we thought a month later we were going to be on the next Marvel film and make $500,000. Uh, you know, we were all wide-eyed and absolutely. So he's like, I want you to go away and write a business plan. He's like, either way, it's yours, but I... A common business practice. Do it right. You guys need to write a business plan, yeah. submit it, and then we'll go out again and see where we're at and make make a plan and make a deal uh, with the money type of you know where the money goes. So, never running a business. Um, I googled business plan 
format <laughs> and just <laughs> deleted the words in the format and put in my own and bullshitted that. Uh, John did the same thing. And uh, now uh, the two of us run a military movie rentals LLC where we rent guns and firearms and vehicles and uniforms and props to film and television. Uh, ironically, <laughs> we made our LLC in Nevada as military movie rentals, Hollywood armorers, one week to the day the Alec Baldwin incident on Rust <laughs> happens. <laughs> I had friends of mine like, hey, was that you, you guys? Yep. <laughs> yeah. That was me. I said that. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, that that was a great time to start a movie gun rental. <laughs> well, um, yeah, now all the the AI, the CGI, the yeah, yeah, we learned a lot. Uh, but yeah, so that is um, right now for me that's a side gig. But for John, that is very quickly become his main focus. Um, he's invested a lot of himself and his money into that. Uh, we're building our own inventory. So in addition to using battlefields, we have our own. Uh, and in the business aspect of things, you have to be adaptable. A business plan that we wrote three years ago is nothing like what it is now. Sure, which is, that's actually probably a good lesson for people just getting started. Mm -hmm. Like your business plan, you should make it as perfect as you can right now, but don't yep. expect it to be the same thing later. It's, it's going change. to change. Yeah. yeah. It's going to, every part of it's going to change. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't, then you're lucky. Yeah. Um, but, but don't let that be what catches you up. Yeah. Like, don't, don't let that be the thing that's not letting you open that door like you were talking about before. The advantage that we had that the owners of Battlefield came to us with was he talked us into it. Um, like it sounded great, um, but running a business is not a hobby. It's it's a thing. Sure. He said the advantage that you guys have here is no risk, and I really didn't know what he meant. But he was like, if you get no movies, no work, nothing in the next year, you still have a job here at Battlefield, and you've spent no money buying tanks and guns. So the money you've got into this business is the cost of your LLC, which was, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks mm -hmm. and all the tax bullshit. That's it. So we had no risk, zero, uh, and off we went. Yeah. Well, how, how's things going now? I mean, like, what are some of the things that you've learned? Um, so Hollywood is not a good industry to school people on how business works. <laughs> Uh, but we've learned a lot of harsh lessons. Um, but I would say one of the advantages that we have is one is we're a team that could be a double-edged sword or a huge advantage depending on you need to think very, very, very seriously about who you are going to go into business with. But I made the right choice uh, going into business with John um, because I knew John, um, he has integrity, he's not greedy, he's capable, he's competent, you know, all of those character traits of a person, he had all of those green flags. Um, everyone has their strengths and weaknesses, um, but we trusted each other to go into business together. So that was 
first and foremost. But the biggest advantage that we have is right now and even 20 years from now, every week or every two weeks, we come together, we have whiskey and cigars and we discuss where we're at. We discuss our goals and we kind of war game. We tell each other what we heard on the street, what we heard on the set, what's changing, how are we going to... We're not going to implement this plan, but we're going to have this plan in case this happens. And the continual upgrading of where we're at and just half of the stuff we talk about is total bullshit. It's just fairy dust. Mm -hmm. But the fact that we're talking about it means our finger is on the pulse. Yeah. Um, and then get, getting into strengths and weaknesses, uh, I'm not a paperwork guy. I struggled in school. I couldn't pay attention. I can't even do my taxes or fill out a driver's. You know what's cool yeah. is that I've got a couple tax professionals that I've had on the podcast that I could direct you toward. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I got one. Uh, ironically, John's sister is an accountant. So oh, okay. Yeah, I, we're I, good. Yeah, we're good. Well, in case. And I didn't. <laughs> I don't make any money anyway, so... But um, (laughs) no, we made some money. Um, But we kind of early on, we identified roles and responsibilities and who's going to be responsible for what. And not only who's going to be responsible for what, but how do they feel about it? And I was straight up with John and I was like, hey man, I'm not good with paperwork. If you absolutely need my help, I'll do it but I'm not good at it. There's going to be mistakes. You know, I'm just not that, that's not something I'm passionate about. I'm not interested. Um, But because of his background, he's more than happy to do that. Um, And I rec, and because I'm not greedy and arrogant, uh, I recognize the time he has into that. So when it comes to our share of money or whatever, I'm more than happy to give him what he needs to, to fill that role. Um, but then he recognizes the strengths that I would bring to the table. So uh, we went into the game initially. Uh, John's the gun guy. I'm the vehicle guy. And we were kind of we were going to kind of split the uniform rentals. Um, and the plan was we were going to do all these crazy war films, and John was going to be running guns on set, and I was going to be bringing tanks to the set and running a tank on a set or a Humvee or whatever. But we very quickly learned that the industry doesn't work that way. The foot traffic for guns is very frequent. The foot traffic for vehicles is very minimal mm-hmm. to almost nothing. Yeah, I mean, it's. I'm trying to think about when the last time like a real serious war movie was around. And I want to say it was like, other than like Top Gun Maverick, we're talking about planes there, but like mm-hmm. tanks... I think Fury was probably yeah. the last. Uh, there's been some B-grade stuff. Yeah. But again, if you don't even know about it, the bottom line of a movie is to make money. Mm-hmm. If you don't know about it, they didn't make a lot of money. So there's some B-grade films like T-34 and White Tiger and so on. Okay. But Fury would be the last notable. Yeah, that's tank. got the big names in it. Brad right. Pitt, Shia LaBeouf. Yes. Yeah. Uh <clears throat> So we quickly learned that John was going to be running guns while I sat on my ass, not working. (laughs) Uh, We got a couple of vehicle jobs. And what we did learn was that John could put five firearms in a film set and be on set for 
five weeks. I would put two Humvees on a TV set for one day and make more money in rentals in one day with a vehicle than he would in five weeks with some firearms. Hmm. So vehicles were the big cash jobs, but the ones that don't come very often, but the guns were just frequent. Sure. Um, we've since learned that um, we're both going to have to be adaptable. Uh, I'm not just the vehicle guy. I have to become a gun guy. And I kind of already am. I was military. I was a battlefield RSO. Um, so I can go onto a film set and run firearms safely and competently in the exact same capability that John can. Train the actor, brief the staff, load the blanks, clear the gun, make sure it's safe, so on and so forth. We, yeah. we kind of both do that now. But the difference is um, our original roles and responsibilities, first and foremost, John was the gun guy. So John is first and foremost the guy that upfront negotiates the deals, preps the guns, puts the guns on set, decides what guns go on set because he'll read the script and kind of figure out what guns are kind of uh, unrealistic to have on the set and put the right one in its place. Um, and then most days on a film set, it'll be an actor and a cop with a pistol and a holster. You don't need two armorers to do that. Sure. But on some- Maybe on an Alec Baldwin set. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can go into that uh, but um, on on some film sets they'll have like a B unit where there'll be a big action day and a B unit in layman's terms is two movies being shot at the same time or two scenes being shot at the exact same time um, and the thing with an armorer is you cannot have you're not meant to have guns be in two different locations with one armorer that's unsafe, that's dangerous, and that's not how it's done. So on the bigger days, I'll come in and be the second unit armorer, so to speak, and then I'll help John prep uh, blank fire guns, so on and so forth. Yeah. How are, um, are you guys at a point now where people are reaching out to you for your services? Because I know initially when it started, it was like, how do we get into this industry? Who do we talk to? Yes. So that's why I would say Hollywood's a bad example to teach people about business. Uh, in Hollywood, um, <clears throat> you, can't, you can't push marketing. It does nothing. So when we started, we had this crazy website this big catalog of all these guns and we had a contact us page. We had all these things we offered like actors training courses, rent this tank, rent that tank. These are all the guns we have. Not once to this day. And so far we've done nine feature films. We've done a commercial. We've done two or three TV shows um, in a low capacity. Not once in any of that time has someone been like, hey, I saw your website. I'm calling you for this. Never. Uh, unfortunately, but maybe also fortunately, Hollywood is all word of mouth and reputation. And it starts off very, very slowly. Uh, someone gives you a shot and then you, uh, you work for them, you do a good job and they remember you. And then hopefully as they grow you'll grow with them. And that's how Hollywood works. It doesn't matter if you're a producer, if you're a director, or if you're with actors. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone kind of comes up together. 
So if somehow, as a new guy, you make it onto the set of Yellowstone, uh, you can do a good job, but traditionally uh, the higher level uh, people in Yellowstone are going to recruit the people that they already know, the yeah. proven team that they've already worked with. That's why like all the movies nowadays, it's got the same people or all, all of Adam Sandler's movies has like so, the same. So you're referring to the casting agent. Yeah. And then all those guys that came up together on Saturday Night Live kind of fall under the same casting agent. Sure. That's why you see a lot of the same actors in the same movies. The same can be said for, for camera crews, grips, armorers, producers, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a time game. Um, so the hope is from here, we do the best job that we can. Uh, we, and, and we haven't done, <laughs> we haven't done too many movies we can pre- be proud of right now. <laughs> We're both veterans. Uh, we want to see American Sniper, Black Hawk Down quality, but we're getting stuff that comes out on page 20 of Netflix. Okay. And nobody in the film you know is going to be in it. Uh, so it's kind of a time game where you just, you have to cut your teeth, you have to do that. Um, and then that guy that directed that shitty B-grade film, uh, he's going to get noticed. He's going to get more budget. He's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And along the way, if you do a good job, he's going to remember Bring that. certain people with him. Right. Yeah. Uh, but then there's geolog- geographical um, circumstance. So I would say that uh, right now we're doing okay. Uh, John's doing... John's at the point now where he's actually been able to step away from Battlefield almost completely. Oh, really? And do... Uh, he's been on set two movies back-to-back doing That's uh, cool. Hollywood I'd love to have him on. Yeah, we'll see if we can we'll do talk it. talk about yeah. that, yeah. Um, and he'd be very good to have on. But um, uh, in terms of like where we're going from here, um, geologically... If there's an arm, there's two armorers in Vegas, it might seem as though you're competing against each other. That is not the case. Las Vegas as a whole is competing against Albuquerque, who's competing against Georgia, who's competing against Hollywood. I know there's a lot of talk now about moving a lot of Hollywood stuff to Texas. There's a mass exodus from Hollywood completely, uh, predominantly because of cost. Um, And I don't care what a movie's about. I don't care if it's about a true story or it's got the best actors in it. The bottom line of any movie is money. How much money is it going to make? It's a business. Um, So before you make money on the back end, they're going to start where they can save money on the front end. Um, But there's that balance of saving money versus spending money to make money. That happens too. But California's just hit this watershed moment where... It's, it's just not really cost-effective anymore. Uh, for the first time ever in history, last financial year, the state of Georgia made more money making films than California. Yeah, well, I remember for a while there, like every new movie coming out, it would say Georgia production yep. or whatever. Yep. So uh, we're in a geological position right now where uh, everybody knows Mark Wahlberg has announced that his moving from uh, California to Nevada, mm-hmm. what a lot of people don't know is that he's behind a huge 
boom in Nevada's film industry. Sure. They've recently announced the introduction of several sounds, uh, film studios being built in Vegas. And Vegas has, is set to become a new hub for Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, not to mention all the sports that's coming yep. out here. The Oakland yep. Athletics are going to be coming out here. And, and, and a lot of that's based on tax credits. Mm-hmm. So the reason Georgia and uh, New Mexico do very well right now is those are some of the states that give the most tax credits. Right now, Vegas is around 15%, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe there's talk of raising the tax credit to bring more film and TV to Vegas. Yeah. So right now we're kind of nobodies, but we're somebody you're in, in Vegas. Good, you're a good spot to be in. And we yeah. have, because of our opportunity at Battlefield, we have, out of the gate, we have more inventory than most Hollywood armorers have ever had. Sure. So the conditions are set for growth, but we'll see. Yeah, I'm excited to see yeah. how that goes, man. And then we were talking about making the gig before. Mm-hmm. That was my next point. So um, I stumbled across a YouTube short video of Jason Alexander who plays George Cassandra in Seinfeld. Uh, and he did a short piece uh, out of an interview and he said, the days are gone and, and he talks from an actor's perspective, but it applies to anybody in the film industry. He said the days are gone where you can be an actor and show up for a gig and then that's your breakout role. You just, you just get the phone call and then boom, you're a star. It doesn't work that way anymore. He kind of laid out the groundwork for a philosophy of you have to make the gig. And uh, we're at a kind of a scary time right now uh, with Hollywood armor is as to where because of the whole rust thing, there's a big push to kind of abolish guns completely out of film set and use airsoft guns and dummy guns and then CGI the gunshots and the bullets. Sure. And whether that'll actually happen or not, I don't know. Um, Some directors say it's just not real enough. Yeah. It's not quality. Um, they may continue to use firearms, uh, but then the law may get involved and actually just outlaw it completely to yeah. where the film industry has no say and state law prohibits the use of firearms. In a yeah, I mean, that being said, at the same time, like good CGI, really good CGI costs a lot of money too. Mm-hmm. So if it is a business and it is about making money, there's got to be a balancing effect too with that. Yeah, you're you absolutely know. right. And and they've already noticed how poor quality CGI mm-hmm. guns. Because I remember there was, a, there was a scene in, I think it was American Sniper with the tank. <laughs> they were like on a patrol and there's a tank behind them. Mm-hmm. It looks like crap. Yep. The tank was clearly not to size. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Yeah, so that's, I guess that's something working in our favor perhaps. Yeah. Uh, but again, you got to look when you run a business. You got to look at what do you have control over and what do you not have control over. As a Hollywood armor, we have no control. We have control over safety, but we have no control over what policy or law might be or might not be introduced to prohibit our craft on a film set. Sure. So how do we become adaptable to? How do we stay alive? How do we stay in the industry and keep going? Uh, 
the only way to do that is to go back to what George Costanza said. <laughs> um, you have to make the gig. And a lot of the production companies we've worked with so far have come up to us and said, hey, man, let's, let's do a tank film. You guys have all these tanks. And I was like, yeah, yeah, let me know. You know. Let me know when you're ready and we'll be there. And they were like, well, we don't know anything about war movies. I'm like, well, neither do I. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, but if you write something, you, you were like a soldier, you know how tanks work, like write something and then we'll look at it. I'm like, are you serious? And they're like, yeah. And I guess me and anyone else who's not in the Hollywood industry had, has an ignorance as to how it actually works. And they kind of laid out kind of the process of how a movie's made, not from the moment the camera starts rolling, but the whole thing. From the moment someone writes an idea on a napkin to getting funding, to building a crew, to building a team, to getting a location and so on and so forth. Uh, and I got to thinking like, and then at the same time I seen this video and I thought, well, take for example, a student who's just got out of liberal arts school or film school, they write a script, they're a nobody they have to produce that script to someone and then with no backing, either they're probably not going to sell their script or they're going to have to make massive sacrifices to get their script out there uh, versus us. We already have production teams. We already know people, you know, that whole, it's not what you know, it's who you know thing. We already have that. Uh, we already have all the equipment. We already have all the guns. We already have all the, we know who the investors are. We already have a production team who's willing to uh, get behind it. Uh, people are demanding content right now. So I thought, why not give it a shot? Like if anyone has a chance, it's us because I can produce a script. And when I go to pitch the script, I can say, hey, not only do I have this script, but this script has X amount of firearms in it and these yeah. tanks in it, I also own a company that will produce <clears throat> said tanks and said firearms, and we can do that at a discount if you buy the script. Mm -hmm. So it's still a business. It's still. It's also while you're writing the script, like you're envisioning where the tank is in this scene, and you're right. Like you know exactly the so, capabilities of your equipment. Right, you're exactly right. So the script I'm writing right now for a film. Um it accurately depicts what equipment we realistically have available on hand already. We don't have to go out and hire anybody. We don't have to build it. It's already there. So rather than writing, rather than writing the script and trying to find these tanks or planes or whatever, I'm taking what we already have and tailoring the script to suit it. Um, and I have no formal training whatsoever, but neither did Jim Cameron when he wrote Terminator. Mm -hmm. Jim Cameron was a truck driver in LA and he'd dream up Terminator in his head driving trucks. Yeah. And then when he pitched the idea, he said, here's my script, but I'm not selling it to you unless I direct it as well. Uh, well, he had to fight a few battles along the way, but eventually, boom, he, you know, Jim Cameron made Terminator. Quentin Tarantino has no film school training, zero. So fortune favors the bold. 
Uh, we have all the cards. Yeah. And there's people that are telling me, oh, it can't be done. You can't do it. But that's, I'm no stranger. Yeah, I, I wouldn't care about yeah. that. <laughs> You've been hearing that your yeah. whole. Yeah. Um, so that Sherman, you could never refurbish that yeah. thing. That thing is done. Watch this space. <laughs> so I'm writing a, a film script uh, immediately. And then My Golden Child is a Vietnam War TV miniseries. Um, but you can't lead with your golden child. Sure. You have to have credibility. You have to have a name. You have to have a quote-unquote resume. Uh, so I wrote a film that we can easily achieve. And then when we become somebody, if we become somebody, if we become successful, then the TV series is there to put out. That's great, man. I know, and I keep thinking back to that that video you made when you were younger yeah. <laughs> in the jungle. Now, now everyone's gonna want to see it. Oh yeah, we, I'm telling you, dude, you should post it. Like, wait until you like release this, this like movie yeah. that you that you've written up, and then be like, look where I started, bitches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fuck. Um, what have you? I mean, we talked about a little bit where the changes in the industry, and there's been like this weird inflection point. Mm-hmm. You have the Marvel, Disney, like everything yeah. CGI, nothing's yep. real, d- mm-hmm. debating whether it's even real acting anymore. Yep. And then you have Top Gun Maverick that comes out where yeah. they're using real stuff. Yeah, I can talk about that. Um, <clears throat> so if you look at the industry, again, I don't care what it's about. I don't care who's in it. I don't care where it's filmed. I don't care what they used. The bottom line is how much money are we going to make? And sadly, if you go back to the 90s when we had the big blockbuster films, Jurassic Park, Titanic, Gladiator, Terminator, Terminator 2, um, back then, the majority of the money was made in selling seats in a cinema. And then it had come away from the cinema and paused for a while and it had gathered momentum again And then it'd almost have a second wind when it came out on VHS or DVD. And then it continually made sales from that point, from VHS and DVD sales. Um, Everyone says COVID killed all that. No, I, yeah, to a point, uh, I would say actually it'd be streaming services. Uh, COVID killed the cinema part of it, but not really. Yeah, for a little while. That's packed every time I go to see a movie now. What what investors worked out was that instead of selling tickets in a cinema, and uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. was one of the first ones that pioneered this theory, uh, when he signed on to do Iron Man, he said, I don't want a salary or a wage or credits. I want a share of the merchandise. So every little Iron Man action figure, every time Iron Man gets put on a kid's lunchbox, every time Iron Man is in a video game, that's where his money or his you know wage, quote unquote, is going to come from. Investors worked out that there's a magical formula to make money. Instead of these big blockbusters that bust open the box office on their opening weekend and then re-release on DVD or VHS. More money started to be made from merchandise and then sequels. And investors worked out that the formula has now changed from quality 
So quality would be a crazy, awesome film that's spread by a trailer, posters at a bus stop and word of mouth, thus putting butts in seats in a cinema to kids nagging their mum to buy that toy, to buy that lunchbox, to buy that video game or that costume. So how do we achieve that? Well, the business model changed from selling front-end cinema tickets to back-end merchandise. So the best way to achieve that is, number one, it has to be repeatable. So that's how Marvel kind of became the kings of the industry in this time frame was it's repeatable. So you can have sequels and you can have offshoots. So you have three Iron Mans, but Iron Man is also portrayed in the Avengers and whatever else. Yeah. Jurassic, you know, Jurassic Park became a sequel sort of yeah, Jurassic stuff. World and right. Yeah. Star Wars. Um, so where the money came from changed and that changed the whole entire business model of Hollywood completely. And um, directors and writers knew that the money came from somewhere else. So my opinion is that less effort was placed on quality as opposed to the gimmick. That's probably not opinion, though. I mean, there's other directors and stuff that have in the industry that have talked about this. Oh, some fucking idiot will argue with me, but... <laughs> yeah, I know. They're... Hey. And, 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 and then COVID hit and just completely shut down cinemas and just thus proofed the theory that our money no longer comes from selling tickets. Yeah, it's, it's, it's now subscriptions, paid monthly for oh, streaming no, it's, services. It's fir and first and foremost, it's the toys, okay. the merchandise. And, and what that means is your quality historic films, Black Hawk Down, Titanic, Gladiator, that you can't make a sequel. Sure. No one's going to buy a, a Russell Crowe gladiator action figure. But they're trying it. I mean, they're doing stuff like with all the old um, the old Disney movies, they're making them live action and CGI. They're trying and they're it now. They're trying everything. it. Yeah. They're trying it now because that that was the first shift where where we're kind of now we're in a watershed moment where that first shift didn't last very long, thankfully. Mm. So there was a period and then there was the CGI period. Um, a classic example of this would be uh, you've got Star Wars uh, Episode One. Mm -hmm. What was that? Two thousand, two thousand and one. Liam Neeson, something like that. Yeah, that was my opinion. That was pretty good. Mm -hmm. Not, it wasn't the originals, definitely, but it was not bad. You know, mm -hmm. you had some cool stuff in there. But then you had two and three, the Hayden Christians and stuff. It was an overload of CGI. Yeah, to the point where it was just numbing. Um, and Hollywood became over-reliant on CGI. And uh, there was a big push for that in the industry because it was cheaper than filming on top of a live active volcano. Yeah. You know, and seeing a Star Wars. Uh, but there was a pushback from the audience to where they kind of, reviews started dropping, they kind of felt that CGI was just Yeah, not well, I've felt that for a while now with mm -hmm. the Marvel stuff it, because they they have all these shows and yep. there's like episodes and you don't know what's going on in this new show, mm -hmm. even though this is the only character you care about. You have no idea what's going on in the storyline unless you watch this other show. But here's the thing, um, and, and the point that I was making was 
go back to Jurassic Park. They were like, this has to be a good movie. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, word of mouth isn't going to spread. People aren't going to buy cinema tickets. Versus the Marvel stuff, the money's not made in how many people don't even go to the movies to watch it. It's made on the merchandise. Sure. So when the producer and the director and the actors sign on to do that movie, they've already made their money in a contract. The money's already guaranteed from sales of merchandise, which is an already predispositioned sure. market. So what incentive do they have to to they're just ticking boxes at that point. There's no creativity. There's no art. Mm-hmm. There's no art left in it. So uh, COVID happened to be the time when the industry changed, but COVID wasn't the whole and sole reason for it. Um, now, there was uh, a pushback to where people started to notice, like, films suck. Mm-hmm. They really do. You know, Fast and Furious. Like the writing sucks. The yeah. jokes they're making yep. are like super, like what? You know, we're on Fast and Furious 28 now or whatever. <laughs> you know, yeah. how far can we go? Uh-huh. Uh, but the bottom line is it's making money. Yeah. If it makes money, they're going to keep doing it. But there's been some warriors in the industry who have realized that it's still an art form and we're not doing this to make money. Yes, we are. But we're doing this because this is what we love. You got to do what you love, right? Sure. So there's select people in the industry that have continued to do what they love and made what they love the passion over the money they make out of it. Yeah. Top Gun 2 changed all of that. So right before Top Gun 2, and again, Top Gun 2 was supposed to come out during COVID, but they wised up and they realized we need to push this thing back. Uh, Greyhound. Uh, the Tom Hanks film in the in the Atlantic, the Navy battle, uh, could have done very well, but they released it during COVID. And I don't even know about that one. I have to watch that it's one. It's a good film. Yeah. Um, and had they pushed it back, you know, they could have done. In my opinion, they could have done better uh, financially. Yeah. That is all. It's written great. It's portrayed fantastic. But a lot of people just don't know about it because it was sure. But Top Gun wised up. They pushed it back. So. Uh, one of the, I guess you could say conspiracy theory or whatever, uh, was that Hollywood started selling out and was getting funded by China. Um, how much influence China really has on what some character does in a, in a comic book, I don't know. But uh, I had heard rumors that uh, Tom Cruise being one of the producers of Top Gun 2... Um, he wanted to keep that within the U.S. film industry. He didn't want China to be part of that funding process. And because of that, he was able to bring in more defense. Uh, the program with the Pentagon where defense actually provides funding and spending towards a, a film. Because Yeah, well, I think they used uh, Lockheed Martin Skunk Works to build that like super secret yep. thing. And, and, and using uh, military... Um, funding from within the US promotes uh, recruiting within the US and so on and so forth because the typical trend of Hollywood writing was now blocked and Top Gun 2 had freedom of expression to make it the best that 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 it could be 
Um, Which that, is totally apparent in the movie. You yeah. can totally tell the difference between the quality in that movie, the writing, the yep. just everything about it, the art of what they did mm-hmm. and they accomplished. They built the cameras specifically for the cockpits. Yep. Like, you can tell in that movie versus watching anything else that's like regurgitated by what seems like AI. Yeah. But they were worried. Yeah. Uh, they saw how much money Marvel made, but not because how good the film was, but because of the kids buying the lunchboxes and yeah. and the 300 sequels that come with Marvel. And we're only on the second Top Gun. Mm-hmm. You know, it's probably not going to be a third, maybe. But they were worried. Um, but they stuck to what they believed was their craft and they did it. Yeah. And they essentially were the leading comeback of the Hollywood blockbuster and the the shining beacon of hope for film the film industry. Yeah. And what's coming out next is Christopher Nolan has done Oppenheimer. Um, it's not out yet. The trailer is out. Uh, but he had the same belief. Um, he's like, why are we sacrificing our craft, who we are, and our passion for... Yeah, it makes me so happy to know that Christopher Nolan said that because he's one of my favorite yeah. directors. I love like almost every single one of his movies he's done. Well, if you look at the business model or the current business model that technically on paper works, Oppenheimer's not going to work. It's not repeatable. There's no sequel. There's no offshot characters. You can't put Oppenheimer on a kid's lunchbox because mm-hmm. no one's going to buy it. But... They're banking on the fact that if they produce a quality film because there's now a demand for quality content, it's going to do well. Well, one of the reasons that Maverick did so well was because people talked about it. They were like, dude, this movie is amazing. Mm -hmm. And so they told people that had never even seen the first Top Gun. And so they went and saw the first Top Gun and then they went and saw the second one and they were like, dude, this might be better than the first one. Yeah. And then they went and told their other friends about it. And then they're like, I'm going to go watch it again. That's a, that's what I did. Yep. I saw it like four times in theaters because I went and saw it with other people. The first time I saw Top Gun 2 was at Oshkosh Air Show on a projector <laughs> with a bunch of drunk F-35 pilots. <laughs> See, you know, you just one-up everything. And, and <laughs> they, they, they were kind of a little jaded at yeah. the situation, but at the same time, they loved it. Yeah. So when he... uh. When he crashes that F-14 at the end, yeah, the, these pilots are like, non-approved aircraft, VA denied. Zero <laughs> percent disability. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Sorry. Now, so how do you, what do you think, we'll, we'll kind of finish up with on this, but what do you think as far as the shift in Hollywood, this kind of ebb and flow back and forth, um, how that might affect what you guys got going on? Well... First and foremost, let's see what Oppenheimer does. Um, if that is also successful, that will... Because invest at the bottom line is investors aren't going to give money if there's no sign of projection. But if Oppenheimer does well, Top Gun 2 did well, these one-off kind of historical stories and quality stories will again become the norm and we may see the reemergence of blockbuster films as opposed to this mind-numbing crap that's been coming out recently. And um, our circumstance specifically, we were kind of tailoring our business model to move to Albuquerque, maybe New, maybe um, Atlanta. But 
with the change in the industry, with the studios coming to Vegas, then now is a chance that if we stay in Vegas, we're already poised to be the leaders of uh, the armorer part of it. Yeah. Uh, however, once again, uh, if you're a camera guy or you're, or you're a light guy, you can be in a romantic comedy, a soap opera, a TV show, a movie. If you're a Hollywood armorer, you're only going to be in action war films. Sure. So we're a pigeonhole. So once again, how do we become adaptable? How do we change? And how do we still make money? Yeah. Make the gig. So we're going to write the script. I'm going to, John's going to maintain what he's doing with the gun stuff, but I'm going to shift into writing and just throw mud at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. If I write a script and nobody buys it, what risk do I have? Mm -hmm. The time I spent writing the script, that's it. Yeah, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, a lot of people, when they're, they're at the bottom, and this is kind of like a, I don't know, like whatever, they're at the bottom, but they don't recognize they're at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And so whenever it comes to taking risks, they think we have so much further to fall. Yeah. If I fail here, this is going to be the end, but they're already at the bottom. Yeah. That's the time to take risks. Yeah. You know, you don't have as much to lose. Mm -hmm. And I think you're in a really good spot geographically. You're in a good spot with um, where you guys are in the business. I think you guys got enough, you know, experience under your belt to where you understand what the industry is doing and stuff. And I'm, I'm really excited to see what you guys have going on, man. The other thing I would say about what we're doing in Hollywood is we're in two businesses, which is a rare circumstance. Uh, what do I mean by that? You can't, you can't be just a gunsmith and all of a sudden be a Hollywood armorer because you have the ability to know firearms and make a firearm shoot on a film set, but you know nothing about the film industry. Yeah, I mean, we're in the United States. Like, Guns are everywhere. There's so yeah. many people who yeah. are gun experts. Great, but if you don't know how a film set works, the politics on a film set, who to report to, how to get funding, how to make it work, how to make it happen, the stages, then, uh, but you can't get a camera guy and give him a blank fire gun and go, now you're, you know all about the film industry, now you're an armorer. So we're kind of in this weird position where we're in two industries. We have to stay in the gun industry. We have to know firearms, we have to know what's coming out, what's in demand, like for example, John Wick. Um, yeah. You have what's called product placement. So all the firearms you see in John Wick, uh, every one of those firearms, those companies such as Glock, HK and Walther and so on, yeah. there's funding behind that because of product placement. Um, so that's kind of one of those double-edged. So sure. we've got to stay in the gun industry, we have to stay on top of the game, we have to, we have to stay at the leading edge of cutting edge firearms technology and stay at the top level of gunsmithing. But at the same time, we're in another industry completely, the film industry. We have to stay in the film industry and understand how the film industry works and where it's going. So it's a weird thing of like, you're in two businesses here. Yeah. And if you drop the ball at either side, you're going to lose. Yeah. So. It's uh, some cool stuff, man. Yeah. I think we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up here. Yeah. It's getting okay. late. Both of our eyes are bloodshot. We're a little tipsy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're um, almost two hours and 45 minutes here. 
Shit. <laughs> that might be a record. Yeah, it is a record for this. Well, I would say the only other thing I would say is additionally, we run a YouTube channel. Um, if you're interested in uh, what we do and following what we do, um, subscribe to Restoration Passion. And on there, you'll see uh, a behind the scenes, in depth look at how we build tanks and planes and all that. You guys have the videos of the Iwo Jima Sherman and stuff on there? They'll be coming. Okay, They'll cool. Coming. Yep, yep. Yeah, um, it's really good stuff. I follow their page as well, and I watch everything that comes out. It's really cool, really informative. Um, even if you're not a tank person, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, it's just good DIY knowledge. Sure. How to weld, how to paint. Um, like always, like, share, subscribe, follow, all the stuff. I really appreciate all the support of this podcast, and I hope that all of you guys will share this one. I know it's long, but it's the I don't best know. Brent, one. Yeah, it's, a, it's the best one. It's the it's best, it's the best one. one. <laughs> uh, I could talk to this dude for hours and hours and hours, and we, we've done it before, yep. but uh, we're going to have to wrap this up. So catch in the next episode. I got a couple more here in Vegas, hopefully at least one more here in Vegas, and then I'll be back to Texas. So if you want to follow my Instagram, it's at the T-E-L underscore podcast. And that's also on TikTok as well. So give a, give a like and please share and we'll catch you guys later. Peace.